0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm your host, Greg Knuckles, and today I'm joined
1: by a guest co-host, Dr. Milo Wolf. Milo, how's it going? Hey, man, it's going pretty well. It's uh, evening time here in the UK, but it's about midday for you. So, you know, just had a long day of work, but about to smash you on the Stronger by Science podcast.
0: Hell yeah. Well, hopefully hopefully this will be a good way to uh, to start winding down and enjoying your evening. Um would, would, would you say you're more introverted or extroverted because either this will be like a fun way to to start your evening, but also just really, really mess with with the winding down process or it will absolutely destroy you such that you're exhausted. But but winding down and, and
1: finishing your day will be smooth as butter. It's an interesting question. I actually did take a personality test a few years ago, the big five for anyone who's in the know. Um, Boringly enough, I just scored about 50th percentile. So as far as extroversion goes, I am disappointingly average. Uh, So it's going to be neither a particularly pleasant nor unpleasant experience, I suppose.
0: Well, that's a... Affective valence, that's another... That's another thing entirely like I'm talking whether you're going to derive energy from this or not. Ho- hopefully it's going to be fun regardless. But yeah, so I, uh, I figure a lot of people listening to this already know who you are, but, uh, for people who don't, we will do a full, fo- a formal introduction once we get into the meat of this episode, um, but for now, what what's on your mind? Uh, do you have any media recommendations, shout-outs, or other happy thoughts to get the good vibes rolling
1: here? I mean, first things first, got to give a shout-out to uh, Dr. Pack, who I think will have been on a podcast very, very recently as of the time of this release, or look forward to his episode in case it hasn't been out yet. Um, as far as media recommendations, I've actually been watching a series called Genius on Disney+, Plus, mm-hmm. and it's the series about various quote-unquote, important historical figures. So, for example, the first season is exclusively shot in a kind of fictional way, but true to life events, Mm -hmm. and it's about different people. So season one, for example, was about the life of Albert Einstein, sort of from childhood to his death. And then there's a season on Picasso and some other people as well. And so far, it's actually been very good. And in case you didn't know, uh, Einstein eventually ended up marrying his cousin so yes he did that is a darker fact that i think not many people are aware of i certainly wasn't and it's uh it's been an interesting topic to navigate oh man
0: hopefully hopefully i'm not uh just slandering him in his grave right now but i think not only did he marry his cousin he was also like from the jump like intentionally kind of a You know, I was going to say shitty partner. Uh, I don't know what the details of their relationships were. Maybe it was something they both agreed to, whatever. Um, But but definitely like an atypical type of deal beyond the marrying your cousin bit. I believe he sent her a letter like right before or right after they got married where he said, and I think this is very close to a direct quote, uh, expect neither intimacy nor fidelity, which yes. That's, that's crazy because like, okay, the this, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm at all interested in any of my cousins in that way. But I feel like, I feel like in a society where there's like taboos against that, right? I feel like you're only, I feel like one of the things that might make someone be interested in their cousin like that is, is if they are just like damn like you are very hot like i'm very into you like or like i don't know or or if it's just like a sort of familiarity thing where like you're trying to stay like close to to family folks but like maybe you're like asexual ish so it's like a little less weird like i i don't like there, there are there are some permutations of that that like I I wouldn't be able to like empathize with, but if someone explained it to me, I'd be like, yeah, I, I kind of see what's going on, whatever. But like, expect neither intimacy nor fidelity. It's just like, what, what, why, why are you walking down this road, man? What are you
1: doing here? What are you doing here? For for sure, man. I think the way I see it, and keep in mind, all of my information virtually is coming from this documentary. I have not fact checked any of this, right? But essentially what happened is he married a physicist, right, uh, named mm-hmm. Mileva, who in her own right seemed very brilliant, but um, eventually realized, oh, I'm developing feelings for my cousin, and therefore sent out a letter of requirements to his wife, Mileva, because she wasn't willing to divorce him. Mm. So it was essentially almost like extortion, where it was like, okay, you're going to leave the room whenever I asked you to.
0: Oh, so that, that, was, that was to his first wife,
1: Yes. and Okay. Then, um, the the reason, at least in the movie, is portrayed as as to why he actually ends up marrying his cousin is because uh, his original wife, Mileva, the physicist, uh, seemingly didn't do, well, was dealing with poor mental health and mm. was also, uh, according to his own mother, struggling to fulfill the roles of a good housewife. And therefore, he saw his cousin doing all those things perfectly and was like, hmm, I may want to get a piece of this. I see. I see.
0: I feel like scientists back in the day were like a lot a lot more uninhibited or or maybe it's just like more has come out about them like with uh with the benefits of historical hindsight. But like Einstein, um, S- Stephen Hawking uh being being a quadriplegic and still finding out a way, like figuring out a way to cheat on his wife, like, yeah, yeah, I I feel like that was, I feel like that was a a weird profession, who knows, who knows, I mean, who knows what modern physicists are up to, maybe 50 years from now, we're gonna look back and be like, damn, the, the guys today are also, uh, absolute... Uh, people who approach relationships in an atypical manner. Who knows? Uh, but cool. That's, that's a good recommendation. I very well might check that out. Um, mine is a, a dental hygiene related recommendation. So, um, typical toothpaste, the active ingredient is fluoride. And the way that uh, fluoride works essentially is like the main, the main mineral composing your teeth is calcium phosphate and uh, fluoride can kind of, so if, if you get like calcium stripping from any of your teeth and you kind of have like exposed um, phosphate with it, that kind of is still carrying an, an ionic charge. Um, Fluoride can kind of like hook on to those exposed, exposed phosphates and kind of like plug in where the calcium got stripped away. Um, and I think, I think fluoride and phosphate actually form a stronger bond than calcium and phosphate do. So like, not only does it replace the calcium you lose, but like it, it's, it's like a pretty durable patch that, that one could put on a tooth, uh, chemically speaking, But the problem there uh, is that if you start getting relatively significant tooth decay, such that like you've lost both calcium and phosphate from like a region of a tooth, just using fluoride can help um, can help reduce the rate at which you continue to demineralize the tooth. But like it's it's not it's not bringing back what you fully lost. Uh, So. There is another chemical uh, that one can find in toothpaste. Some places called hydroxyapatite, which is just the the kind of like mineral name for calcium phosphate. Like it, it is the stuff in your teeth, um, and it can actually kind of help like plug those plug those holes where you do actually have like uh like actual tooth decay like it's it's not going to fully reverse a full-on cavity that's formed but like little kind of like micro fissures in your teeth where you have demineralization uh hydroxyapatite in toothpaste um can kind of like plug in and and fill those gaps and so it was difficult to find pretty much anywhere outside of asia until quite recently um it was developed by NASA because they thought for some reason like I'm I'm not totally sure on the history here, but I think they thought for some reason um, fluoride might not work like like fluoridated toothpaste may not work the same way in space or that they might just have to have like even more heavy duty toothpaste due to. Kind of the effects of unloading from gravity like they, they knew that would be bad for bones maybe it would be bad for teeth as well uh, so anyway nasa did research on just using hydroxyapatite um, for like tooth, toothpaste applications for astronauts but at some point they lost interest in it uh, i i don't know exactly why it could be that microgravity doesn't negatively affect tooth health the same way it does bone health could be that like fluoridated toothpaste still work just fine Uh, I'm not, I'm not totally sure, but basically like it it was their patent, but they were just like, ah, we don't really care about this anymore. Like we're just going to sell off this patent. And it was bought by, I believe a Japanese company, like in the sixties or seventies. And then there's a bit of a saga of like lawfare sort of to keep hydroxyapatite toothpaste Out of a lot of other countries, because like if you if you go to the store and see a lot of brands of toothpaste, I don't know the extent to which this is the case in Europe, but like it's the case in the US. You can see a lot of brands of toothpaste, but they're mostly owned by just like two or three companies Um, and they, they kind of have that market cornered and. Uh, you know, they they have like economies of scale, efficient manufacturing practices. They just buy up most of the shelf space in stores where one might put toothpaste. And so it it would be difficult for like a new toothpaste company to get like a really strong foothold in the market and challenge them with just like typical fluoridated toothpaste. But if someone came in and they said, hey, we have we have this other ingredient that like fights cavities via a totally different way like that. That may be a good way for someone else to get a foothold in the market. So they, uh, you know, they, they had their lawyers talk to regulators for a long time and, um, you know, in, in like ensure that it would be very difficult for for hydroxyapatite toothpastes to come into the U.S. and compete with them. Um, so anyway, I'm not sure I'm not totally sure what's happened recently, Um Maybe there were just like regulatory changes, maybe some like court order expired. Like I have no idea, but I started getting ads for hydroxyapatite toothpaste. I, and like, so I I knew uh, like some of that history and I'll tell you where I heard it, uh, giving credit where it's due. One of our uh, one of our macro factor developers and business partners, Corey, um, is is really into this stuff. And one time I went over to their house and uh, he was just like, Greg, I need to tell you about the toothpaste conspiracy. And to most people, they might be like, well, I don't want to hear about toothpaste. Like, what what are you talking about? But I heard that and my ears perked up. I was like toothpaste conspiracy. I am all ears. Um, so anyway, that's that's how this was on my radar in the first place. And so I got an ad and I was like, oh, this is this is intriguing. Um, and so I looked around and found a few brands that had both the typical concentration of fluoride that you would get from fluoridated toothpaste and also hydroxyapatite. And as kind of like mentioned up top when I started talking about this, they work via two slightly different mechanisms. And so I would think that they would have additive effects. Um, I And so, yeah, I, I picked up a tube, um... If you're listening to this and you would like and you would like to to brush like the host of the Stronger by Science podcast and you know approach approach our, our parasocial relationship that way. Uh, the actual brand I picked up is called Dr. Jin's Super Paste, if you want to check it out. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. 20, 2024, I'm going to start taking my oral hygiene even more seriously. And uh part of that is is trying out new toothpaste with a cool, new active ingredient, and um yeah so if if you also like your
1: teeth, it's something potentially worth looking into. Wow, you're the only person I've ever known to make dentistry and toothpaste interesting, so very impressive feat
0: like seventy percent of that was just parroting stuff, Corey told me um <laughs> so. He 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 made it interesting for me first. I'm I'm just passing along the love. Okay, so uh, we're about to get into the content here, but just some standard plugs up top before we get into it. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, subscribe, and uh, tell your friends. Rating us and, and liking it on whatever podcast platform you listen on really does help us out. Kind of helps their their recommendation algorithms and whatnot. Um, if you're interested in hiring a virtual coach to help you with your training and or nutrition, Stronger by Science has a great team of coaches that can help you out, uh, including Milo here, um, one of our very best coaches. Uh, they are all one of our very best coaches. They're all great, uh, and Milo is no exception there. You can learn more about our coaching program at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching, If you want to purchase supplements uh, that are already cheap and high quality and you want to get them even cheaper, check out BulkSupplements.com. Use code SBSPOD at checkout for an additional 5% off. Uh, If you're in the market for a premium nutrition app, and who isn't? That's really the hot commodity these days. You should check out Macrofactor. That is our premium nutrition app uh macro tracking and diet coaching functionality it is truly excellent Uh, and you can use code sbs when signing up to get an extra week added to your free trial uh if you want to stay up to date on all of the research that's relevant to strength and physique athletes and coaches as it comes out uh, you should check out monthly applications in research uh, monthly applications in strength sport uh or MASS for short, you can find that at massresearchreview.com. If you'd like to fully stay up to date on the Stronger by Science Extended Universe, join our Facebook group and subreddit. uh, That is Stronger by Science Community on Facebook and reddit.com slash r slash Stronger by Science on reddit. Uh, if you want to stay in touch in another way, uh, you can sign up to our newsletter at strongerbyscience.com/newsletter. Uh, there, we'll send you high-quality, informative content as it is published. If you're if you're worried that you're going to miss uh, new articles or research spotlights or whatever, sign up to the newsletter, and guess what? Then you won't miss that stuff. Uh, in That is like primarily what we use it for. In the interest of full disclosure, sometimes we do send little pitches and sales emails, but very, very rarely. That is not the primary purpose there. We're not going to spam you with that stuff. Um, And last but not least, if you have questions that you'd like us to answer on the podcast, uh, you can record a voice clip and email it to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. Uh, Please keep those questions under a minute, if possible. So let's get into this episode. As I mentioned up top today, I'm joined by Dr. Milo Wolf. Uh, And so, uh, Milo, my my first question for you is, uh, I know you did a small tour of the U.S. this past summer. And so I'm just curious, what was your favorite part of the trip? Uh, And as a European, what was the most stereotypically American thing you did? Like, like you you, you just do it and you're like, damn, this is this is this is just so so different from from life back in
1: Europe. Man, that's a good question. So I think honestly, my favorite thing I did, and the most stereotypically American thing I did, were perhaps the same. And by and large, that was eating. Um, <laughs> so maybe the most stereotypically American thing I did was actually in you know good company, namely with yourself and Lindsay. I um, had some barbecue, like smokehouse barbecue, for the first time, and. Mm-hmm. I think the first time in my life. I'm not 100% sure about that. But it certainly doesn't have as much of a cultural influence or you don't find it many places in Europe, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Hey, maybe it's because the EU loves to crack down on potential carcinogens, but uh, it's just something you don't really find in Europe. And so having uh, smoked barbecue was honestly one of the highlights. I also had other good food. Like I think I got to give credit to... It's basic, but a bagel in New York, honestly, like, again, (laughs) not a thing you really find that much in Europe, but just very solid, like a good amount of food, tasty street Mm -hmm. food, can't complain. So honestly, like by and large, I would just say eating a variety of food. Um, What I will say, undisputed champ of fast food to me, right, from what I've had, and this is a limited selection, Mm -hmm. Chick-fil-A. Right. Hell yeah. Uh, Just very 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 good it's funny you
0: say that because you you live in the uk and i do think it's a little bit funny and and does play into stereotypes a bit that you're like what what was my favorite thing about america i had some good food for once uh you know it's 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 not just it's not just mushy peas and beans on toast you guys have flavor (laughs) not to mention bread sandwich you know or toast sandwich is cool i think Oh, yeah. Oh, man.
1: Oh, man. I forgot about toast sandwiches. God, that rocks. So, uh, yeah, if you're not familiar, a toast sandwich is when you make a sandwich, but instead of having the usual uh, flavorful things inside, like you might have ham or you might have some greens and maybe some sauce, really, all you really need in there is a piece of toast, right? Like, I think the two slices of bread are already the good bits. We may as well just have more of them. And so, by having that slice of bread in the middle as well, you're really just maximizing on your original investment. That's how I see it, and certainly that's how they saw it during wartime in the UK, because they actually came up with something called the toast sandwich.
0: Uh, I mean, that that was probably a kind of necessity as the mother of invention type of thing. Uh, here's here is something I don't quite get about the UK. Like there there are there were quite a few things. Like there there were like. Wartime kind of like real, real struggle bus foods from the US during like the Great Depression and various wars and whatnot that like you can read about in a history book. But then like the war got over or the recession got over and like food became more plentiful again. And we, we simply s- stopped eating those things for the most part. Um, I really. I really do want to know why like toast sandwiches are are still a thing, you know? Like if, if all you can afford is bread and you're like, hey, I wanna I wanna gussy this up a little bit, feel like I'm still eating a sandwich, like I get it. But like but why why, why still, you know?
1: So I it, to all you know to give credit to the UK where it's due, I don't actually think anyone nowadays has a toast sandwich. However, we do still have things like uh, beans on toast. Mm-hmm. which is only one step away from that, which is we take baked beans, right? Some of the cheapest food you can possibly get, canned food. And you say, no, I'm not going to have ham on my in my sandwich or anything delicious. I'm just going to put beans on it, right? It's, it's cheap, it's plentiful, it's nutritious. I'm going to put beans on my sandwich and it's going to be delicious. Um, I think, honestly, the poor culinary choices of the UK are summarized in their breakfast. I think that their breakfast is a weird combination of like... Wait, wait, wait! Things like, a, like a,
0: like a full English breakfast?
1: That is correct. Yes,
0: I, mm, it just, I disagree. I disagree so strongly. Go on, then. I, d- go on. I, I do love a full English. I mean, I, I don't have anything insightful to add. Um, I, I do, I do just like a full English breakfast.
1: I just think that it, it comes off as very deconstructed, right? To the point of just you put random things on a plate: beans, some tomatoes, some mushrooms, some. Uh, poorly co- cooked bacon and by the way crispy bacon is much better than thick cut uh, watery bacon Um, so that's what, what, another what, thing that the what, what is it again streaky versus
0: slab bacon are those the terms
1: yeah something like that I mean in the US basically whenever you go to a diner you get um, crispy thin strips of bacon and it's delicious and great Yeah. but in the UK when you get a 4 English breakfast oftentimes you'll just end up with like a slab of bacon that isn't brown in the least and it's just mediocre and it still tastes good because oftentimes you know it's smoked and it's fatty and it'll be fine but you just have to ask the question why yeah
0: yeah okay um so uh that that is that is good i'm i'm glad you enjoyed the food when you visited the u.s um but I I think that we uh, we we probably should um, introduce you to the audience. So for for people unfamiliar with you, which uh, their misfortune by the way, uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. What's your what's your lifting background? What's your academic background? Uh, what what should what should people know
1: about Milo Wolf? For sure. So as you so kindly introduced me, my name is Doctor Milo Wolf. Although Doctor is not my first name, uh, it's merely the title I was recently awarded. Um, so my lifting background and sports science background actually relates back to trauma by science a little bit. So I first started lifting when I was 13 or 14 years old. Uh, I just stopped playing soccer, you would call it in the US. And it was like, ah, this team sport thing isn't really for me anymore. And I'm about to take this push up and curls in my room hobby up a notch and go to a gym. So I started lifting when I was 13 or 14, initially did all the uh, silly things you could possibly do. So I was doing a body part split, you know, 30 sets of triceps in one day, 30 sets of abs in a day, past failure, all the good stuff. Um, watching Mike Chang, I remember distinctly, good times. And doing keto in rural Austria, because I was convinced by Mike Chang that was how I had loose lose fat at the time. Um, so good times, really. And then after a year or two, things went downhill, and I started reading String Theory. Um... So that's when I started getting into the science behind lifting. And it went from having a good time, watching Mike Chang, just enjoying life really, to reading about the science. And to be honest, I kind of enjoyed it. So over the past next like couple but, but, of years- But, st- but still it, enjoying life, right? It's uh, not- Less so. <laughs> less so. <laughs> <laughs> it all went downhill from strength theory onwards. Um, there was another inflection point when it was renamed to Stronger by Science. But, uh, you know, just downwards from there, really. Yeah, that's
0: that's totally understandable. That 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 is the typical trajectory, I think, of someone in our audience. You're you're happy, go lucky. You're happy as a clam. And then you discover our stuff and you're you're much more well informed. But some somehow there's just not as much light in life anymore. Just every everything starts seeming gray. Yeah, um, will we'll work on that in 2024. Maybe we'll see. We'll
1: see. For sure. So started reading strength here at the time, started getting more into the sports science side of things. Um, my programming started becoming less bad, which was nice. And uh, around the time I turned 17, which is when I finished high school, I had to decide, hey, what do I want to study after I'm done here? And a variety of things had appeal, but ultimately the one thing I kind of did in my free time seemed to be lifting and reading about lifting. And so I was like, yeah, okay, let me just pursue this, I guess. It's pretty fun. So went to the UK. I moved from Belgium to the UK to study. I did my undergrad in sport and exercise science at Loughborough University, which was all well and good. But towards the end of, I kind of realized I hadn't really learned much about lifting. Mm-hmm. I'd learned a lot about the basics of physiology, like biomechanics and motor control, which was helpful, right? More so as, and I think you've, you've brought me this analogy, more so as a bullshit detector than anything else, where mm-hmm. you kind of get a sense of, okay, this person's saying things, but they don't align with even the most basic of physiology or biomechanics, and therefore something ain't right, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So that's what it kind of helped me with, I think, and also in just being able to read most papers and understand at least kind of what's going on. But then from then on, it didn't really teach me anything with regards to lifting. And I think that's where I was kind of lost. And I was... Towards the end of my undergrad, I'd done reasonably well, but I was kind of thinking, okay, where do I go from here, right? I've been doing some coaching for a while as well, so I had some experience on that front, but I wasn't 100% sure where to go. So I toyed with the idea of doing a master's in statistics or in data science, what have you, to kind of give me both a better interpretation of science, but also potentially broader prospects. So if I wanted to do something else, I could always do that, right? Kind of a... uh, A wise move or like the the smart move in that sense
0: yeah i I mean not to not to throw too much shade on my own field but like that just just for just for uh being confident in setting oneself up for success that may have not been the worst decision you could have made uh glad i'm i'm glad you went down the road you did but it's not the most portable degree
1: one could have (laughs) it certainly isn't It, it really isn't um But anyways, uh, eventually I actually spoke to Greg here and I asked him, oh, if I wanted to do a master's or a PhD and actually learn about lifting, where would I go? What universities have researchers who research lifting? Because presumably those universities would be better positioned to actually tell me about lifting. He gave me some recommendations. Uh, One of them happened to be within, or a couple of them, within the UK. And so I got in touch with Southampton Sollant University uh, down south in the UK And initially I was going to apply for a master's program, uh, in sports science, but to make sure that I wasn't making a huge mistake, I got in touch with the uh, program, I guess the head of the program, right. And just emailed them asking, Hey, my main interest is lifting. Will this actually teach me about lifting? And they got back to me and said, no, it won't. It's uh, still a very general program program. And to be honest, if you wanted to learn about lifting, you'd be much better served pursuing a PhD. And so I said sure, and applied for a PhD there, uh, put in a research proposal, and got accepted. So I actually didn't do a master's; I went straight from undergrad to a PhD. And so from the year twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty three, I did my PhD in sports science. Specifically, I looked at the effects of range of motion during resistance training. So in the gym, how much range of motion do you lift with? Do you, for example, in the squat, do a full range of motion squat, going as deep as you can, and all the way back up. Or do you do a partial squat, for example, a half squat? How does that impact adaptations? For example, how does that impact how much muscle growth you see from that exercise? How much strength you gain? That was essentially the topic of my PhD. Um, and yeah, recently finished, successfully defended the PhD as of three months ago, two months ago. And yeah, here we are now.
0: This is your your first time on the podcast, your, your research uh, of very good chunk of it to this point has been about uh, the impact of of muscle length and range of motion on hypertrophic responses. So uh, I, I feel like as as your first appearance on the Stronger by Science podcast, I would be remiss if that was not the topic that we dug into here. So that that is the main thing we're going to be chatting about uh, in this episode. So um, just to kick things off, I'm curious what got you interested in that topic in the first place. There are you know, virtually infinite number of things that one could uh, tackle for for their PhD research. So why
1: range of motion and muscle length in particular? Great question. So I'm actually going to give a shout out to Mass Researcher you here, Because around the time I was applying for master's programs in data science, statistics, and what have you, I was reading a lot of maths, right? Like I'd been subscribed to mass since 2017 when I started my undergrad, de- undergrad degree and I saw that you'd broken down the systematic review by Brad Schoenfeld and Joseph Gergic on the, the effects of range of motion during resistance training on muscle hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of reading this stuff at the same time as I was making applications for master's programs and PhDs and I looked at it and I was like, huh. That's pretty cool. Uh, There's apparently only six studies on range of motion and hypertrophy, and there seems to remain some lack of understanding as to how it works in some regards. At the time, we had four studies in the lower body and two in the upper body. And in the upper body specifically, there was kind of a lack of consensus, right? Which led the authors to speculate that maybe in the upper body, in those muscle groups, there's a different... Relationship with range of motion compared to the lower body, right? Like, if for a lower body you use a four range of motion, you might see more growth. But maybe in the upper body it works differently where you don't need to use a four range of motion, what have you. Because mm-hmm. at the time of the two studies that have been out, I think one had found better hypertrophy with a four range of motion and one had found better hypertrophy with a partial range of motion, if I'm not mistaken. And so it just seemed to be an area that was in need of more evidence to get a clearer picture. Yeah, I, I think I think
0: at that point, uh, there there was already the Goto study and then the the Pinto study on curls, which which were you know which were kind of weird. Like it, it was it was strange that there were only two upper body studies and everything else was lower body. But those those were also two like full range of motion versus partial, but only in the middle of the range of motion studies so um you know instead instead of like going all the way down or locking out just kind of like staying in the mid range which is like an atypical an atypical model so it's it, it i it, it was it was a little bit interesting that those that that, that that was all that existed
1: for upper body at the time for sure for sure and i think that's what as we'll probably find out later in the episode contributed to the lack of clarity in the findings um anyways that was part of the reason the other part was at the time i was uh doing some work for renaissance periodization and one of the big recommendations they used to make and still make to this day to an extent was to use a full range of motion when lifting for hypertrophy or for muscle growth um And myself, I was very much employing this in my own training and in my coaching practice because I thought the evidence was pretty solid. I kind of, as you really shouldn't be doing, uh, took someone on their word without directly looking at the evidence too closely. And so I was like, huh, okay, well I'm using four range of motion and everything, but it turns out the evidence there isn't as rock solid as I thought and like... At the very least, there isn't enough evidence yet to have a clear consensus for all muscle groups all the time for hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, it's a topic of interest because I see plenty of people using a partial range of motion, plenty of people using a four range of motion. I have no thoughts and there was lack of evidence. So I was like, okay, I got to pick a topic here. Uh, that's the thing with a PhD, I think, that a lot of people initially think they need to do perfectly, right? They need to be like, okay... I'm going to pick the perfect topic that I will remain interested in for the duration of my PhD and be passionate about, and it's going to be awesome. I think that's a very good aspiration to have, but equally at some point you need to make a decision about what you are going to study. And as long as it's a topic that you're reasonably interested in, I think you should be fine. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of said, okay, well, look, I have a reasonable interest in this. There's a lack of data. Let me just go ahead and submit a proposal for this. And yeah, that's kind of how it all started. Nice, nice.
0: Uh, so, can you can you describe your own research a little bit um, and the broader research around the topic of impact of, of range of motion and muscle length on hypertrophy outcomes? Just just to make sure that the listener has like pretty pretty solid grounding in this topic before we delve deeper.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I'll give my answers in a in a few parts, I guess. The first part is briefly summarizing what the research looked like in 2020 when Mm -hmm. that systematic review I just mentioned came out. At the time, in the lower body, it seemed pretty clear across four studies that full range of motion was better for muscle growth, right, compared to partial range of motion. Oftentimes, in these lower body studies, they use the squat exercise. The squat is just a fan favorite when it comes to sports scientists. They just love looking at the squat whether it's because of transfer to other sports or what have you, but squats is just the exercise of choice typically. And then within the upper body, they had two studies um, which kind of had mixed results. And so we needed a bit more evidence. Now, at the time, I think they essentially just looked at range of motion as being either full or partial, but they didn't really dig deeper into it. They also didn't perform a quantitative synthesis. So they didn't perform an analysis. They also didn't look at the effects of range of motion on different outcomes, like, for example, strength outcomes or power outcomes or sport outcomes. And so there was some, there was something missing as far as the range of motion data went. And so a few years later, in 2022, 2023, uh, in the middle of my PhD, we essentially thought, look, as part of the thesis, it makes sense. First of all, you have to do a literature review. And so if you also do a meta-analysis, that just kind of fits in neatly, right? It's a good way to do it. And so I conducted a meta-analysis and systematic review on the existing literature, comparing partial range of motion to four-range of motion and its effects on hypertrophy, strength, power outcomes, sport outcomes, etc. And essentially, here's what happened. First, compared to previous analyses, we did a lot more, I guess you could call it digging, or subgroup analyses and moderate analyses. Mm-hmm. Some of which, like if you're looking at a subset of data, you're often going to be looking at like two or three studies. And so you're not going to be able to say, look, there's definitely something happening here. But you might be able to say, oh, maybe there is something happening here and it might be worth investigating further, right? Some analyses are a bit more tentative than others. But broadly speaking, here are the results of that meta-analysis. In total, we had around 20 to 25 studies, if I recall correctly. Um, A lot of them looked at strength. Some of them looked at power outcomes. About eight, I think at the time, looked at hypertrophy, so a bit more data than when um, the Brad Schoenfeld systematic review came out. And When you just looked at full range of motion versus partial range of motion and how that did for different outcomes, like for example for hypertrophy versus strength versus power outcomes, sport outcomes, all effect sizes leaned in favor of full range of motion when you simply dichotomize things by full range of motion and partial range of motion. But as far as how much of a benefit there was in favor of full range of motion, we're talking about a trivial effect size of around 0.1. So a trivial effect size is usually considered between 0 and 0.2. So it was right in the middle of being a trivial effect size in statistical terms, right? However, that's that was interesting to me first of all for one reason, which is that a previous meta-analysis on the same topic for hypertrophy had found a pretty big difference in favor of full range motion, uh, because they had only looked at lower body findings. That was a meta-analysis by Belarus and colleagues, and so I was quite surprised to find out that ah, actually, full range of motion only seems to have about a zero point one effect size in favor of it over partial range of motion even for hypertrophy so that was one finding i kind of had to wrap my head around keep in mind my background there was i think for range of motion is best and so that was kind of if anything my bias going into it and so that was one thing but then things got both more both went as predicted but also way differently than predicted from there so as I mentioned, we then performed some subgroup analyses to look at different things, like different substance data, looking at, okay, how does this, how do things change when, for example, we look at machine-only interventions versus free weights. Does that play any role? That sort of stuff. So two of those things that we did look at were, one, specificity, essentially, and two, the muscle length at which partial range of emotion was performed. Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking about specificity, we essentially took strength, power, sport outcomes, and categorize them by what range of motion are these outcomes actually testing, right? So if for example, you're talking about a partial range of motion one rep max in the squat, and you know, you're know you doing a half squat, for example, that would inherently be more of a partial range of motion outcome. And so if specificity was a thing, you would expect the partial range of motion group to see better outcomes than the full range of motion group. Mm-hmm. Likewise, certain outcomes didn't really have a bias either way, so for example, isometric tests, depending on the joint angle involved, might not really have a bias towards either a partial range of motion approach or a four-range motion approach. Mm-hmm. So whether you train with a four-range of motion or a partial range of motion, inherently, if specificity even if specificity impacted results shouldn't really play too much of a role. And then finally, there were outcomes that were more so biased towards a four-range motion, like for example a four-range of motion or max. And so, when we categorized outcomes for strength, power, sports, etc., that way, what we saw is that the range of motion that you trained in did impact how much of a benefit did you see in your outcome. Essentially, when you train with full range of motion, you saw better full range of motion gains than if you trained with partial range of motion. Likewise, when you train with a partial range of motion, you saw better partial range of motion gains than when you train with a full range of motion. So, essentially, specificity did seem to apply to range of motion. The interesting caveat there looking at the literature overall, twofold. One, it seems that full range of motion delivers more of a benefit to your partial range of motion performance versus partial range of motion training will deliver a benefit to your full range of motion performance. In other words, if you do a full range of motion squat, for example, you'll still get pretty decent gains in your half squat, right? But if you did half squats, the carryover or the transfer to your full range of motion squat might not be quite as good, right? So ultimately, train in whatever you're trying to get better at, but there will be a greater carryover to partial ranges of motion by doing a full range of motion than is true the opposite way around. If I can just say something about that, I
0: I really don't find that surprising at all. Uh like that bit. J- just that like carryover from full to partial is better than carryover from partial to full. Because like with with full range of motion, you are still training the partial range of motion. Just not exclusively. You know, like Uh, the, the, the idea of like full squats, improving half squats more than half squats, improve full squats. Like if you're doing half squats, you're, you're not training the bottom half of the range of motion, which is like kind of where the squat is the hardest in the first place. So I do find it fairly intuitive that it, that, 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 that carryover is not going to be particularly good. But like when you're doing a full squat, like you are also still doing a half squat, like you go down to half squat depth and then you just keep going. And then you stand up a little bit, and you reach half squat depth, and you keep standing up. Like the the partial range of motion is still like fully circumscribed in the full range. So like I'm not I I, I don't I don't find it
1: surprising that that carryover is much better than the other way around. I agree entirely, and you and I came to the same conclusion. In the thesis, I kind of described it as it comes down to the inclusion versus exclusion mm-hmm. of different ranges of motion. When you're doing a partial range of motion, by definition you'll be excluding some of the range of motion involved in a full range of motion outcome, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're doing a full range of motion, you are still including that partial range of motion outcome. And so you will still get some gains there. Um, The other interesting thing was it seemed like, and this is a lot more tentative, but potentially uh, combining a full range of motion and a partial range of motion might deliver similar or slightly better strength gains compared to just doing a four-ranger motion, even for four-ranger motion strength outcomes. So there are now four studies on this topic, I believe, that compare sort of only doing four-ranger motion work to doing a 4 of motion work and some partial work in there as well, right? For example, you could do like 75% of your training as four-ranger motion squats to competition depth, and maybe you do 25% of your training as like half squats, right? That would be an approach mm-hmm. uh, as an example. And across those four studies, generally you see the same strength outcomes or maybe slightly better when doing a combination, which kind of lends credibility to the idea that what a lot of powerlifters power have been doing for a while anyways is reasonable enough and that they have some partial range of motion training in there mm-hmm. and they're probably not missing out on any strength gains and they may even see some additional strength gains as a result of including some partial range of motion in there. Um, so those were kind of the findings as far as strength went and performance. The more interesting findings to me, because uh, while I've competed in powerlifting, I also competed in bodybuilding. And while I'm not rushing to get back on stage for bodybuilding, I do generally train more so for hypertrophy. Um, so the more interesting findings, I think, to a lot of people and to myself especially, and full transparency, when I got these results, uh, it took me a few days to fully digest. And I remember texting a client of mine being like, I must have like inputted the data wrong during data extraction. Because this <laughs> just doesn't seem right, based on everything like I've seen and heard and stuff like that, it doesn't quite strike me as right. Um, essentially, when you broke down approaches, so you have full range of motion and you have partial range of motion. But when you're looking at partial range of motion, you can break that down further into whether or not you were training on average at shorter muscle lengths compared to full range of motion, or at longer muscle lengths. So when you're doing a full range of motion let's break it down into halves, right? One half will be more so training the agonists at short muscle lengths and one half more so at long muscle lengths. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were to do bottom half partials on the squat, for example, you would be training on average at longer muscle lengths for the quads, the glutes, the adductors, and so forth. And so depending on where you do your partial range of motion, right, you may or may not be training at longer or shorter muscle lengths compared to the full range of motion on average, right? But just staying in a certain position For most of the set, Mm -hmm. and so when we broke down partial ranges of motion into being either at shorter muscle lengths on average or at longer muscle lengths on average, for hypertrophy, a different picture emerged. Specifically, it seemed like when partials are performed at short muscle lengths or shorter muscle lengths, you see worse hypertrophy compared to full range of motion. And the reason why, in previous meta analyses and systematic reviews, we had found that the full range of motion was better was probably because the preponderance of evidence has simply compared short muscle length partials to a full range of motion. Mm-hmm. And if short muscle length partials are inherently worse for hypertrophy, and that's how most studies have compared partial range of motion to full range of motion, that's why you'd say that overall full range of motion tends to outperform partial range of motion. However, when you then compared a partial range of motion performed at longer muscle lengths to a full range of motion, we actually saw more hypertrophy with a partial range of motion, but with longer average muscle lengths. The caveat there, at the time of the meta analysis, we only had three studies. As I mentioned earlier, with some subgroup analyses, moderator analyses, and so forth, you often are dealing with a pretty small subset of data, and you don't have a ton of confidence regarding is there really something happening here, or am I just seeing noise in the data, mm-hmm. right? And so I was cautiously optimistic about this stuff after a few days of just being absolutely confused as to how this had happened um
0: i i guess when you would have been doing your meta-analysis like there there was what at the time like the the mayo uh hamstring curl study um like seated versus line hamstring curl and the pedrosa quad study and like that was that was kind of it for like specifically uh separating out like short and long muscle length partials so like probably don't want to like massively over-extrapolate from two papers.
1: For sure. So at the time, we actually looked at uh, three studies, which were the Pedrosa study, the Workhausen study, uh, an underrated classic, which had participants do something like nine degrees of knee extension based on a schematic mm-hmm. uh, on the leg press, which is like a super partial range of motion. And finally, actually not the Mayo study, because the Mayo study didn't actually compare a full range of motion to partial range of motion, just the same range of motion at different muscle lengths. So that wasn't actually included in our analysis. What we included was actually. The, oh, you're,
0: you're you're right. I i i had i had that as like a tab in my mind as like equated like total angular displacement, yeah. but different muscle yeah. lengths, which yeah. which
1: is like functionally the same. Indeed, indeed, all good. The last day we included was actually the GoTo study, where if you look at the ranges of motion involved, it is it's kind of in between a moderate muscle length or like a midway partial and like a length and partial, mm-hmm. uh, if you actually just straight up compare the average joint angle and muscle length in the partial group versus the four-inch motion group, it is longer in the partial range of motion group, but it's very close to being the same. But as far as sort of co- sort of the approach we took in categorizing studies, it just fell into the length and partials group. I think that's it's more of a length and partial than is a shortened partial, to say the least. So that's the three studies that we included, but... In the process of writing up the discussion, obviously there were a lot of studies that weren't included in the meta-analysis because they didn't directly compare a full range of motion to a partial range of motion. And in fact, at the time, I think there were seven or eight studies comparing the same range of motion at different muscle lengths. The Mayo study you mentioned earlier is one of them, where, for example, in the Mayo study, they compared doing the same range of motion of knee flexion, so of flexing your knees, on the seated leg curl versus the lying leg curl. Now, because the hamstrings and a few other muscle groups are biarticular and actually cross at the hip, your hip position during the seated leg curl and the lying leg curl will impact the muscle length of the hamstrings and potentially the gracilis muscle, for example. And so while you're doing the same range of motion, the same degrees of knee flexion in both the seated and lying leg curl, in the seated light curl, you would be lengthening three heads of the hamstrings more. The biceps femoris long head, the semitendinosus, and the semimembranosus. Whereas during the lying light curl, you might be lengthening the gracilis muscle more. Because it's hip flexor, when your hips are extended, it's being lengthened more. And so the same range of motion, but different muscle lengths. And broadly speaking, at the time, I think we had seven or eight studies. We have nine studies now. We had these studies comparing the same range of motion at different muscle lengths. And very consistently within this data as well, Nowadays, we have nine studies, eight of which have found more hypertrophy, broadly speaking, after partials at longer muscle lengths compared to partials at shorter muscle lengths. Likewise, in the discussion, I also noted that we had, at the time, I think also five studies comparing isometric contractions at different muscle lengths. So either at shorter or longer muscle lengths, just an isometric hold. And again, consistently across these five studies, it seemed to be the case that doing those isometrics at lower muscle lengths led to more hypertrophy compared to shorter muscle lengths. And so while I was initially honestly taken aback by the findings with regards to hypertrophy when you sort of subdivided it into partials at short muscle lengths or long muscle lengths and how that compared and sized up to 4 of motion, when you actually take a step back... And look at the overall evidence, there's about 20 or 25 studies comparing different muscle length training and measuring hypertrophy. And very consistently within that overall data, it seems to be the case that longer muscle length training is better. And it just so happens to be that when you compare longer muscle length partials as kind of a vehicle for that almost to a full range of motion, it also seems to be potentially better for hypertrophy. So since this meta analysis has been published, there have been. Two new studies. One is only conference abstract, so who knows if it'll ever come out. Uh, so don't don't take this as a, as a gospel, right? It may be that they just presented at a conference and it'll never come out. But mm-hmm. I'll include that for the sake of discussion here. So two studies, one of which only is conference abstract. But when you add those into the aforementioned three studies, we have five studies comparing a four inch motion to like partials. Amongst these five studies, four found more hypertrophy in some regard, not necessarily at all sites but in some regard, more hypertrophy with a length and partial approach, or longer muscle length partial range of motion. And one has found no difference. And the last one is the study by Workhausen and colleagues. And so overall, at this stage, with having 20 or 25 studies comparing shorter muscle length training to longer muscle length training for hypertrophy, and very consistently finding, hey, longer muscle length training seems beneficial for hypertrophy, it's not an open and shut case. But it's getting to the stage where it seems to apply across a variety of muscle groups. It seems to apply across a variety of sort of contraction modes, whether you're talking about isometrics or partial range of motion at different muscle lengths or full range of motion versus partial range of motion. It seems like a relatively generalizable principle at this point to say that longer muscle length training will lead to more hypertrophy than shorter muscle length training. The final note I give is, as far as magnitude goes, I think with any new phenomenon, people are newly researched phenomenal, rather. Um, people are very quick to assume this is going to be revolutionizing your gains. And for the sake of integrity and transparency, this won't revolutionize your gains in all likelihood. We're talking about a difference of like, based on some analysis All right, well, it's on.
0: been a good episode. Thanks for coming <laughs> on. Uh, no,
1: I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Keep going. <laughs> uh, based on some analyses we ran, we're talking about a difference in hypertrophy between 4 range of motion and lengthened partials of like five or 10%. Uh, it's honestly not going to be noticeable to you in a likelihood. Like, even if you went from only four range of motion to only length of partials, there's a good chance you'd never be able to tell the difference. So it's worth noting.
0: What does the research directly tell us about the mechanisms here? Like, is there a, like, super, like, robustly well-established um like direct mechanism to explain those findings or is, is that something for future research to work out?
1: Yeah, so unfortunately we don't fully know yet. Um, very few of these intervention studies that compare, for example, lengthened partials to four-inch motion or what have you really even measure mechanistic data, right? Like uh, one study by Godo and colleagues, the one I mentioned earlier, that one, for example, measured uh, blood lactate and oxygenation. But that's a rarity, generally it's not even that, and so we are far from having any sort of consensus as to what the mechanism exactly is here. Now you could kind of grasp at straws and try and extrapolate and generalize from some of the stretch literature we have, right? So we have data in mostly animal models and mostly with durations of stretching that are essentially incomparable to some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about stretching studies, we're often talking about at least like an hour a day of stretching. Uh, That's kind of like the minimum in human studies relatively commonly used like an hour or so a day. And in animal studies, often we're talking about around the clock. And so if you were to take those studies where yes, they are being kept at long muscle lengths the whole time. And so you might assume that there's some mechanisms in common. There absolutely might be some mechanism in common, but it's very important to remember that... A, we're talking about mostly animal studies. B, the durations and intensity of exposure are very different, right? When we're talking about stretching, we're talking about being kept at the longest possible muscle lengths. At, for humans, often they're relatively low intensity. For animals, often they're relatively high intensity. Um, but we're talking about often hours a day of stretching versus an extra 30 seconds being spent at long muscle lengths during lifting if you're, say, using length and partials versus four-inch motion. So assuming there's some sort of dose-response relationship there with the mechanism causing growth during stretching, and you know, as you spend half an hour, you get a bit of growth. When you spend an hour, you get a bit more growth. If that were really the mechanism at play here, I'm not sure we would see it with durations of exposure, You know, spending an extra 30 seconds extra in a lengthened position across a whole session mm-hmm. when comparing lengthened partials to a four-inch motion. It just doesn't seem likely, and to an extent I've compared it before, to comparing the adaptations or the mechanisms involved between the adaptations you get from cardio or like running, for example, or endurance work, which often involves like 20, 30 hours of exposure a week versus for example, lifting. There are different modes of exercise altogether. And so I think we're relatively far away at, the, at this point from a clear mechanism. Um, it may also not be that there is one clear mechanism. Oftentimes I think with physiology, it's not uncommon to have redundancy and different pathways kind of overall causing more hypertrophy from one approach versus another. Um, all that to say, no, we don't currently have a clear mechanism as to why lower muscle lengths cause more hypertrophy potentially.
0: Yeah, i I definitely agree with that takeaway. I um one of the one of the things about this topic that frustrates me, and I assume frustrates you as well, is this is a subject that has over the last year or so gotten like I think relatively popular as like a topic of discussion on social media and whatnot uh and and just across the web more broadly and when most people talk about it I I very frequently see like very very strong statements uh, about like why these findings exist um which which often come down to like, oh, it's it's all just about stretch, and like the stretch under load increases um muscle length uh, and and like that's the main mechanism or um it's all about one one that I see pop up from time to time is like titan related signaling because like when titans lengthen, there's like, um like kinase binding domains, but like, As far as I'm aware, we're still not totally sure what those do Um, or that it's all just about like total tension. Like when you go to longer muscle links, you have an increase in passive tension within the muscle. And so like total tension is higher. But like, I don't know, like my my read of all of that is that one, those are all potential mechanisms, but you you kind of need to connect things right like you need to run a study that simultaneously um like it, it has to use an experimental model where you test the impact of different ranges of motion on outcomes and then within that same study you investigate mechanistic explanations for the outcomes that you observed within the same sample that you observe those outcomes in so you know, you you could say, like, and and going back to the comparison to the stretching literature, you know, you could hypothesize, hey, we have this entirely separate body of literature that finds hypertrophy after um, after stretching interventions. Uh, you can't then say, therefore, that is what is explaining these long muscle length training findings, because you know, like, there there's well. I mean, if if we wanted to take it a step deeper, I don't think we're even sure on, like, the precise mechanism by which stretching causes hypertrophy in those studies. Like, you know, you, you need to go one step further down the rabbit hole. You you observe that the stressor of stretching causes some hypertrophy, but we don't know, like, mechanistically why that is. Uh, but, yeah, like, you—so, you, I guess it's still, like, two steps from establishing that. But, yeah, you, you can't look at the stretching literature and say stretching causes hypertrophy— training at longer muscle lengths, that's kind of like a stretch. Therefore, that is what is causing greater hypertrophy here. Like, you, you would need to, like, observe some sort of, like, mechanistic explanation in the same, like, like within the same study of the same sample where you observe those results with a particular experimental model. And, yeah, like, I, ju- I just, uh, I haven't seen that. And, like, the the passive tension one is, well, in. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm on, on my bullshit here, uh, really quick. The other thing that, like, really irks me about the stretching explanation of, like, oh, like, it's, it's all just about stretch, is, like, a pretty decent number of the studies here very notably don't stretch the muscles involved. You know, like, if, if you wanted to talk about, um... I don't know. Let's say, let's say, like the the Bloomquist study on squats, where you're comparing squatting from uh, zero to sixty degrees range of motion, uh, uh, like knee flexion range of motion, to zero to one hundred and twenty degrees knee flexion range of motion. Not like not everyone is going to feel a stretch in their quads if they go to one hundred and twenty degrees of knee flexion, but like some will. You know, you you could credibly look at that and say. Oh, yeah, like they they put a stretch on these folks quads and you load that and you observe more growth than training at zero to 60 degrees range of motion. Like, okay, cool. Like you could you could maybe make that argument there. But then like several of the studies just use like knee extension exercises through zero to 90 degrees range of motion and. I mean, if you're listening, bust out a fucking protractor. Like, bend your knees to 90 degrees of knee flexion and tell me if you feel a stretch in your quads. I, Unless you've recently, like, had a knee injury where you've been in a brace for several weeks and you're now working on regaining range of motion in your knee, like, if that is you, yeah, maybe you feel a stretch in your quads when you flex to 90 degrees of knee flexion. Fucking no one else is experiencing a stretch there. So... There, there are enough observed instances of more hypertrophy at longer muscle links in situations where longer muscle links do not coincide with any sort of like significant stretch occurring that like, I feel like you, you can't, you, you can't in good faith lean on that as like a full explanation for, or even like a primary explanation for these findings, um, And then the other one is like the, the total tension idea of like, oh, like, I I think I think a lot of this just comes from bad assumptions about causes of hypertrophy. And this might be another topic for another day that would be good to to dig into. But I, I think that there's like a strain of like what I like to call tension reductionism that's floating around out there. Like the idea that mechanical tension is the only thing that matters for hypertrophy and ta- and tacitly kind of building on that, uh, as tension increases, it like more or less linearly increases growth. So like if you can increase tension on something, that will like increase the the hypertrophic signaling response. And so the the idea building off of that is like, when a muscle is stretched, um, like obviously you you can like actively recruit and contract a muscle. That's like active tension generation. And generally your ability to actively generate tension decreases at long muscle links just because you, you can get fewer uh, actin and myosin cross bridges forming as sarcomere links increase. But you also have like... Um, stiff semi-elastic connective tissue running through your muscles that when a muscle is put in stretch the tension generated by that tissue basically to keep your muscle from like tearing off the bone uh starts going up and the the for not every muscle but for a lot of muscles like theoretically where your total muscle tension is the highest would be like right before your muscle tears all the way off the bone. <laughs> um and at that point it's like almost no passive tension or almost no active tension and entirely passive tension, but like the the capacity to um yeah, depending on your perspective, generate or withstand passive tension is is quite high. Um and so, you know, uh the the idea here is like, well, tension is really the thing, and so if you can get Passive tension really, really high, like total tension will be higher, therefore it will be better for hypertrophy. And like, that, that's just not how these experimental models work. And in some cases, you you could look at some of these results, and say like, hey, in the long, in the longer muscle length group, total tension would have been higher in that group than the shorter muscle length group. Um like the there there was the seated versus lying leg curl study by Mayo that we've alluded to a couple times like it would fall uh it would fall like under that umbrella cuz like the hamstrings do have like pretty tremendous capacity to generate passive tension and if you look at like modeling research you would get like quite a bit Of that um in like a seated leg curl compared to a line leg curl like full knee extension plus 90 degrees of hip flexion like that that puts your hamstrings at long enough lengths that you're you're getting pretty significant passive tension generation there but then like the quads for instance i mean the the total tension generated by the quads is the highest at like 60 70 degrees of knee flexion like if if that's if it if it just came down to total tension. Like a lot of these studies are on the quads in particular. And I feel like the research on the quads, like pretty much falsifies the idea that it all just comes down to total tension with like passive mechanical tension being like a really big thing. Cause like, yeah, like I, I don't, I don't know what to say. Like you, you, you generate more total knee flex or knee extension torque, uh, including both active and passive tension at 70 degrees of knee flexion than 110 like fucking everyone does like tension is higher at shorter muscle lengths for the quads yet we see more hypertrophy with longer muscle lengths so yeah i don't know like I, I it it frustrates me because i do see a lot of people very confidently throwing out mechanisms and as someone who does know this area of research pretty well like i look at them and i'm like dude if like, if you actually read this stuff, you wouldn't be making the statements you're making as confidently as you are, because, um, you know, it's, it's not impossible that those things are possibly like potential contributors, but like one, one of multiple potential contributors, but like the, the idea that, that those are the exclusive contributors to this phenomenon, I think is like fully falsified within the research, but People just act like it's not. And it 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 I feel like it's gaslighting almost because here here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like when I see someone making a statement confident enough and I see other people who are like who I think are like generally relatively bright, um, kind of like boosting that and being like, oh, yeah, like this is good stuff. I'm like, am I the am I the crazy one here? You know? Um, but I'm not, I think, I think a lot of people really don't know the research in this area particularly well. And some of those other things, like they, they feel like they're right. It's like, oh yeah, like tension, that's important. Ooh. And yeah, like we do see hypertrophy with stretch sometimes. Like, yeah, that, so yeah, like it, it makes sense, but then they don't really like dig into the research deep enough or think about it enough to realize that like, no, that's that's actually like kind of stupid because like the idea that either of those things is like the exclusive mechanism, yeah. It's it's not just that it's it lacks support. Like I I feel like that idea is just fully falsified at this point.
1: I agree fully. Um, okay, Oof. I think the t- <laughs> that, that would have been awkward if not. The- <laughs> um, I think the tension reductionism is a big one, and I think in general the. Haste with which some individuals in the industry, or like, or some camps rather, are eager to establish a model before we even have the data in place to make it worthwhile, is odd. So, as you mentioned, it's a big inclination nowadays to pinpoint the mechanism as being passive attention. Right? In reality, the evidence isn't quite there to support that yet. But who knows? Maybe it will turn out to be the case that this is, in fact, the only mechanism. But until that evidence is there, the um, the quasi-obsession with trying to fit every study's findings into this box of like, okay, that makes total sense because of passive tension or of tension and, you know, oh, what's that? There's some data on pretension, for, for example, um, lactate presence, stimulating hypertrophy, independently of tension. Well, uh, there's got to be some reason I can explain that way with. So essentially, I think the over-insistence with forming a model too early can lead people astray in their understanding of stuff. Um, Especially because I think if you have a certain lens that you like to look at research through, you end up discarding things that you shouldn't be discarding as far as ignoring certain studies or what have you. When in reality, physiology can be messy. It may not just be one mechanism at play. And if you just look at it throughout one lens, you might be tempted to discard certain findings. And I think that's made evident as well by, look, different muscle groups have different length tension relationships, right? We don't even have a perfect understanding of these yet, but they do. And yet, even with that being the case, it is very consistently the case across a variety of muscle groups, including the triceps, the biceps, the calves, the quads, the hamstrings, the glutes, that longer muscle length training leads to more hypertrophy, Right,
0: and these muscle groups have, or, differing or at least spectrum. in some instances, has led to more hypertrophy.
1: Indeed, just just to just to soften that a little bit, for sure. Um, but in general, the literature, like, let's compare this to other fields of empirical evidence uh, within lifting volume, uh, relative intensity. So, how close to failure you train. If you look at just individual studies, if we get meta-analytic estimates of effects. The data on range of motion is similarly, if not more consistent, I find, in terms of a study finding more hypertrophy with, say, a higher volume versus a lower volume. With range of motion and different muscle length training, it's honestly, the degree of consistency is remarkable. Um, it's just an observation, but I think it is worth noting.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with that. Like the... Volume to some extent, but like definitely proximity to failure, like the ind- individual study results are all over the place. But yeah, like with with uh, range of motion and like muscle links and hypertrophy, I mean, out of a pretty out of a pretty decent, a pretty decently sized body of literature at this point, you have maybe what, like th- three, four, maybe five studies that don't conform to the general trend, which I don't know is is. More consistency than you tend to see in applied sports science type research. Um, so just uh just one one last quick question before we take a quick little ad break. Um, just staying on the topic of of mechanisms here for a second. If if you just had to take a stab at it, and like you you don't need like citations. For this or anything, this is just like purely gut level. Although if, if there is some like mechanistic stuff that I'm unaware of, please, please enlighten me. But um, if you had to take a stab at it, what, what do you suspect the, the primary mechanism is or mechanisms are? Like, you know, even if some of this stuff isn't established, just on kind of like a gut level, where, where do you, like, what, like, what, what do you think
1: explains these findings? Yeah, so I think the most likely explanation, and this might be a cop out because it is directly relying on outcomes we've actually measured, and then a little bit of sort of imagination, I guess, which is the case for all these mechanistic explanations. But I think the the one I find most likely is one thing you consistently see within the range of motion data is that longer muscle length training leads to more overall hypertrophy. Not in every study, but reasonably consistently. But that seems to be more pronounced at more distal sites of measurement. So when you're measuring hypertrophy, you can either look at whole muscle hypertrophy or you can look at regional hypertrophy. How does hypertrophy differ at different areas of a muscle? Mm -hmm. At more proximal areas, closer to its origin point, or at more distal areas, closer to its insertion point? What you do consistently see is that at more distal points, closer to the insertion site of a muscle, for example, for the quads, more distal would mean closer to the knees. It just means further away from the center of the body, essentially, whichever insertion point you're talking about. And consistently with range of motion data, longer muscle length training preferentially increases the hypertrophy of distal areas. So for the quads, closer to the knee, for the biceps, closer to the elbow, what have you. And so to me, it doesn't strike me as altogether unreasonable to think, hey, maybe during longer muscle length training, those areas of the muscle have to contribute more force production to the movement. Or get activated more readily, and there is a line of uh, research by Wakahara and colleagues. I believe I could be I could be confusing Wakahara and colleagues on Ogasawara. I have read both papers, and my head. Isn't I, me, I I I I, b- I believe it's Wakahara. There we go. Um, there was like three studies looking at activation as measured via transverse relaxation MRI, as opposed to surface EMG. And they did find a relationship between activation of different areas of a muscle during different exercises and hypertrophy of that area of the muscle. And so maybe those distal areas of a muscle simply get activated to a greater extent during longer muscle length training and therefore see more hypertrophy. At this stage, because it does rely on, hey, we actually measured hypertrophy in different areas and we see that there's more hypertrophy in this area, that to me seems reasonably intuitive. But equally, I'm far from settled as regards that being the definitive mechanism. That's how I'm standing on it. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I, I think, I think that would make sense that
0: that would, that would certainly be a very tidy explanation. And for what it's worth, that would be, I think one of the more feasible things for if, if someone is listening to this and they also want to do a, uh, a, a A doctoral thesis on muscle length training. some some mechanistic stuff would be nice to see, and this and, and the reason I say that is like I think this would be one of the more feasible ones to look into because like you can you can do regional EMG analysis. like you know, like quads, we very reliably see this effect in quads. And like you could just have like three different sets of electrodes, like some at a more proximal site, some middle, some more distal and just see like do we see greater distal emg with long mu- mu- with long muscle length training than like shorter muscle length training and then run the study and like verify that you do still see like one greater hypertrophy and two greater like disproportionate distal hypertrophy in the sample that you collected the emg data in like that that se- that seems like a pretty feasible research project and one that um yeah, like, it, it, I I would like that to be the mechanism just because, like, I feel like that could be established within the next year if someone had interest in doing that study. But something like relating to signaling cascades associated with, like, the Titan kinase binding sites, I mean, that's a feasible study for someone to do if they're doing research in one of maybe, like, four labs in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for everyone yeah. else, good luck. <laughs> like
1: you, yeah. you just don't have the equipment to do that study. <laughs> I agree with that. Uh, the one thing I'll say, and this is not to be a potty pooper, but I think we're we're both aware that sort of surface EMG and hypertrophy the length there is a lot weaker than most people realize, and I think. This is actually what a study by Plotkin and colleagues recently tried to do. So they compared squatting to doing hip thrusts and measured hypertrophy of the quads, glutes, hamstrings, adductors. But one thing they did as part of the study design was they actually measured EMG of different areas of the quads, hamstrings, glutes. I think mainly the glutes, if I recall correctly, as far as um, EMG of different areas of the glutes during Mm -hmm. the hip thrust versus the squat. And then they try to see, okay, well, we measured these the EMG value or the activation of different muscle groups at baseline before we actually had participants train. Do the values that we see for activation via surface EMG before the study actually correlate to how much muscle growth they see across the study doing these exercises at different sites within the muscle and what have you? And basically, there were next to no correlations or association between surface EMG taken at baseline and hypertrophy of different areas or different muscles whether you're talking within a muscle, like within the glutes at different sites, or between muscles. Like, for example, you saw great quad EMG during the hip thrust, but then you didn't necessarily see great quad hypertrophy during the hip thrust. So I think a surface EMG might be, it's tempting because it's a convenient thing to measure, but I'm not sure it's, depending on how you apply it, may not be the best way to do it. Yeah, this would be too big of a
0: diversion, but I, I I do think that there are some some methodological considerations there like for sure so i i feel like a lot of it would come down to kind of like how you normalized things especially when you're dealing in particular with like biomechanically dissimilar movements um because like a certain emg value there's i mean there there are potentially issues with like generalizing emg values to like uh, to like necessarily imply muscle activation but like those considerations become larger and larger as fewer things are like standardized or like more things differ between exercises. Um, cause like you could, you, so like range of motion is, is like pretty important here because you could have like the, the EMG values associated with full muscle recruitment differ based on range of motion. So you, you very well could see like peak EMG values in a, in an exercise that loads muscles through a particular range of motion, but that higher EMG value than some other exercise that like primarily loads the same muscle through a different range of motion. Like it, it could be lower in the other exercise, but like actual motor unit recruitment is higher just because like the EMG value associated with like full motor unit recruitment can like differ based on range of motion. And so for, for like squats versus hip thrust, that is like, that is kind of an apples to oranges comparison. Um, and, and like I'm I'm not faulting the researchers for selecting those two exercises, but just saying like that is that 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 is a situation where I would expect EMG to not be particularly informative. Whereas um, you know, like just knee extensions through two different ranges of motion, particularly if you're doing something to like normalize emg value because like because like you can you can do a emg angle curve trace and so like you could you could compare not just like mean and peak emg values but like emg at like different parts in the range of motion if you did like zero to 60 versus zero to 120 like you could you could match up those traces so that you're comparing apples to apples with like the zero to 60 comparison um and even even kind of like normalize yeah, whatever, whatever. We're, we're not we're not designing that study right now. Like, yes, I acknowledge I acknowledge the weaknesses of EMG, but I do Yeah. like I I, th- I think that it, it is it could probably be like contextually useful if it was a simple enough study design with enough variables controlled. And I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily look at a squat and hip thrust comparison and say that that like throws two too much cold water on the idea that EMG could be a useful proxy. Um, but I'm I'm also not surprised that it wasn't a particularly useful proxy in that context, just because like the two exercises are so biomechanically dissimilar.
1: No, for sure. And I think another proxy that's kind of gotten some attention recently, and again, somewhat mixed data, is muscle swelling acutely mm-hmm. and whether or not that correlates with long-term hypertrophy but yeah i think that mechanistic research that tries to look at some proxy of um activation or predictor of hypertrophy might be a good avenue for future research
0: all right uh so in the second half of this episode we will dig more into some of the claims made about long muscle length training and some of the controversies and open points of discussion surrounding the topic but for now Let's take a quick ad break. All right, and we're back, uh, ready to kick off the second half of this episode. So, um, Milo, it's it's been claimed. I've I've seen people saying that certain muscle groups don't grow more when trained at long muscle links, and c- kind of the two muscles I see. Uh, invoked the most frequently uh, when making that claim are the biceps and triceps. and uh, so I'm curious uh well, I'm not curious I'm asking for the sake of the audience because I think some of them might be curious. I think I know the answer but uh why why do you think people make that claim and uh what what does the research say on the topic and and what what do you think about? The idea that like we either already know or can reliably predict which muscles will or won't grow more from training at long muscle lengths.
1: So the inclination to say that certain muscle groups won't respond to longer muscle length training, to me, seems to stem as a downstream consequence of reductionism, once again. Where if you assume that passive tension, for example, is the only mechanism at play and you see that, for example, the biceps and triceps don't experience much passive tension in a given exercise, or by being lengthened more, what have you, then you might assume, okay, well, they don't benefit from normal muscle length training, because the mechanism that's at play here isn't going to cause an additional amount of hypertrophy. Now, I think that's all well and good, but equally, the most useful studies in answering applied questions of, is this going to grow more muscle? are ultimately going to be the studies that actually measure hypertrophy from different things because when you're relying entirely on mechanistic rationales, you can often be led to diametrically opposing viewpoints, right? So if, for example, you think that passive tension is the only thing that matters, you might assume that, for example, the biceps, triceps may benefit less so from long muscle length training, right? Whereas if you're going off the assumption, you know, that... uh, potentially certain muscle groups do respond better on account of some other mechanistic variable, then you could come to the opposite conclusion. And depending on your framework, they could both be warranted, rationally speaking. But if the direct studies actually measuring hypertrophy don't seem to align with what you predicted, then maybe you are relying on the wrong mechanisms. Or maybe you're assuming there's only this mechanism at play when there isn't. And so I think whenever you're ask the question of does intervention A or intervention B lead to more hypertrophy or better outcomes, looking at studies that directly compare the two and measure your outcome of interest should be the first recourse. Then you can look at mechanistic evidence as a means to explain away the findings or potentially to inform future studies or just for, to form a more thorough understanding of the phenomenon. But you always have to look at the actual studies measuring hypertrophy first. In this case, we have now three studies on the triceps, and I believe we have two studies. We have a variety of studies on the biceps, but it depends on whether you include studies. For example, there was a study comparing incline curls to preacher curls, where essentially you're comparing the same range of motion, but you're comparing one exercise at the incline curl that has a longer muscle length for the biceps, long head, because the shoulder is behind you, it's sort of overextended, and therefore the long head, of the biceps, is more lengthened. But the resistance curve is more so biased to being difficult in the shortened position. So, as you flex your elbow to the top of the rep, roughly, the lift gets harder and harder. Whereas in the preacher curl, you kind of have the opposite situation, where because the biceps, well, the upper arm is and the shoulder are flexed, the long head of the biceps is more so shortened. However, as far as the resistance curve goes, you have the most difficulty in the movement when the forearm is parallel to the ground or when your biceps are reasonably lengthened. And so certain studies like those do help to inform this as well. But by and large, we have three studies on the triceps comparing longer muscle length training to shorter muscle length training, and two studies on the biceps, to my knowledge, um, comparing different muscle length training or different ranges of motion in the biceps. In the triceps, we have a study by Staston and colleagues, which compared pushdowns to overhead extensions, with overhead extensions actually being performed in the sort of most lengthened position. Two pushdowns being performed also with 90 degrees of elbow range of motion. So same range of motion, just a different shoulder position. And because the triceps are monoarticular for the most part, so the lateral and medial head only cross at the elbow, their muscle length shouldn't change during pushdowns versus overhead extensions. But the long head of the triceps does cross the shoulder. And so if you're doing an overhead extension, the long head will be more lengthened as a result compared to a pushdown. So in this study, they compared overhead extensions as a more lengthened exercise to pushdowns as a more shortened exercise. And broadly speaking, they didn't find a difference in hypertrophy um, between the overhead extension and the pushdown. If you read into it and squint just right, you can see that nominally uh, the differences do lean in favor of the overhead extension group, which when you consider that as an overall estimate, we're talking about potentially as little as 5 or 10%, difference in growth. It may be that, hey, there was a difference in the study, but it simply wasn't picked up through the use of null hypothesis significance testing, which does avoid a lot of type one errors or false positives, but it does also often result in false negatives, whereby you miss a f- result that might have been there.
0: Well it it does um with with, with that study in particular, the Stasanaki study, there were like, I think slightly conflicting Results with muscle thickness measures versus uh, cross-sectional area measures as well. Like I, I could see, I could see someone making an argument in in either direction with this one. Honestly, because like, well, I don't know, I don't know. Like the the regional hypertrophy responses do conform well with like the rest of the literature here, um, but with with the exception of generally what we tend to see is long muscle length training causes the same or maybe slightly more hypertrophy at proximal and and middle sites than short muscle length training and quite a bit more at distal sites. Uh, With the cross-sectional area um, results in Stasanaki, in particular, you did see nominally more distal hypertrophy with long muscle length training, but you you saw like considerably more proximal hypertrophy with short muscle length training so kind of like yeah like like the broad contours of the relationship were similar in that you see a large a larger advantage distal than proximal with long muscle length training but with this one it did it did seem like short muscle length training was actually better proximal than long muscle length training was for the cross-sectional area findings and then the muscle thickness findings were I, I I kind of agree with your characterization there. Where if if you squinted those, there weren't there weren't any significant differences, but kind of the nominal differences favored um, long muscle length training for both of the sites they assessed there. So uh, I I I do personally view that one as a relatively ambiguous finding. Um, like the regional hypertrophy findings were very much in line with what we'd expect. Um, from the the rest of the literature, like the, the broad pattern. But I don't necessarily know that I would lead on that one um, as evidence of like more kind of global hypertrophy with long muscle length training.
1: Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and I do think this is one of the rare instances where, again, if you squint a little bit, you can see that shorter muscle length training led to more proximal growth. This is a relatively rare finding. But it does seem to lend credence, again, to the sort of overall contour of the relationship, as you mentioned, that, hey, longer muscle-length training seems to be more beneficial at more distal sites, not so much proximal sites. Mm-hmm. So let's study one. And incidentally, the only study on the triceps that hasn't found a benefit to longer muscle-length training. The other two are the study by Godot and colleagues, which, again, it's sort of in the middle of the full range of motion, the partial range of motion kind of did... Um, roughly half reps in the middle of the range of motion. But if you're categorizing it simply into is it a shortened partial or a lengthened partial, it is still a little bit more lengthened than the full range of motion would have been. And then the third study would be the study by Mayo and colleagues, which was not exactly the same design as the study by Stasenakis and colleagues, but relatively similar. So the ranges of motion involved were relatively similar, but the Essentially, the overhead extension group was training in a slightly less lengthened position in the Mayo group, in the Mayo study, sorry. And so we're talking about a relatively similar study to the Stasnaki study overall. Um, within both the GOTO study and the Mayo study on the triceps, we did find more hypertrophy by and large with the partial range of motion approach versus the full range of motion approach. And so when you're kind of synthesizing all three studies, I would say that you're dealing with A, not ideal data, because um, with the Godot study specifically, it's not really a strict comparison of a length and partial to a four-inch motion. So if you wanted to merely answer the question of, is length and training better than short and training, or do the triceps benefit from length and training, then it's not an ideal set of studies. Um, so I can't say this is an open shot shut case but we are saying that there are three studies of those three. Two have shown a benefit in terms of muscle growth to lengthen training, and one has found, by and large, no real difference. Um, this is kind of in line with the rest of the evidence. I would say the rest of the evidence is more consistent, generally. But you know, if you have only 10 studies, one of them or two of them might turn out to be non-significant. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there is no effect. It could just be Variance associated with a relatively small sample size. That totally happens, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily mean that there is no effect. So that's kind of my take on the tricep data. And biceps? Biceps Biceps-wise, we have two studies. Uh, We have a study by Pinto and colleagues, if I'm not mistaken. That was the first one. And we have a study by uh, Pedrosa and colleagues, their second study on range of motion. And finally, depending on how you count it, we could also include the study by Zabalita and colleagues that I mentioned earlier. That was the one comparing the incline crawl to the preacher crawl. Um, but let's focus on Pinto and colleagues. And oh, I, I was I was thinking uh, Sato as well. Oh, Sato as well. Correct. Yes, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yep, correct. Um, so actually, can you head us off with Sato? Cause I've forgotten some of the details on that one. Uh,
0: yeah, it was, it was unilateral bicep curls. It was, uh, comparing two different partial ranges of motion. So, uh, 130 to 80 degrees of elbow flexion. So that's the long muscle length and zero to 50. That's, uh, that's short muscle length. No, no. Since, since, since it's normalized deflection, it, it would be inverse, but whatever. You get the point two, two groups training, training through a total, Uh, 50 degrees range of elbow flexion, one long muscle length, one short muscle length, Um, doing unilateral bicep curls, assessed muscle thickness at 50, 60, and 70% of humerus length, Um, and by and large finding pretty much what you expect, Um, more, more hypertrophy with long muscle length training, and in particular in the more distal sites than the more proximal sites.
1: Yeah, I mean, that sounds um, like what I recall. Uh, now that you're mentioning it, it does come back to mind a lot more. Um, the other two studies I can think of are the one by Pintoin colleagues where they compared, both of them used the preacher curl. Um, the one by Pintoin colleagues looked at a full range of motion versus a partial range of motion. Um, now, as far as hypertrophy went, they found that there were no real differences between the two groups. So, whether they used a four-range motion or a partial range of motion, there was similar hypertrophy. The important thing here is that the partial range of motion group did train on average at shorter muscle lengths, and the four-range motion group, so it was a short muscle length partial essentially, and the four-range motion group trained on average at longer muscle lengths, and. Again, if you look at the results nominally and not just significance-wise, there were nominally in favor of the full range of motion or the long muscle length group. But this one study did not find a significant difference between the full range of motion and partial range of motion group as far as I sure. um, The final study, the one by Pedrosa and colleagues, compared the same range of motion, but simply performed at different muscle lengths. So again, we're talking about the preacher curl and they were either performing the bottom half of the rep where the biceps would be more lengthened or the top half of the rep where the biceps would be more shortened. And they measured hypertrophy at um, 50 and 70% of humerus length, so at a more proximal and more distal site. And they looked at cross-sectional area. And by and large, hypertrophy outcomes were more favorable in the group doing the bottom half partials compared to the top half partials. Um, The overall or summated cross-sectional area increases were similar between groups, so not statistically different. Um, but when it came to the 70% site, so again, the more distal site, they did see more hypertrophy in the lengthened partial group compared to the shortened partial group. So I guess when you kind of synthesize these three studies, the Pinto study, the Sado study, and the Pedrosa study, it's kind of a similar story as with the triceps where the Pinto study didn't find a difference. Uh, between a four ranger motion, a kind of longer muscle length training, and a partial ranger motion. But again, nominally, it was in favor of the longer muscle length group. In the Sato study, it seemed to be in favor of the longer muscle length condition. And finally, in the Pedrosa study, in the more distal site, we did see a benefit to the lower muscle length group. But in the more proximal site, there was no difference. So it seems to conform pretty neatly to the rest of the evidence in that it seems to be hey, Longer muscle length training predominantly helps with hypertrophy at more distal sites. It potentially helps at more proximal sites, but the effect may be more less pronounced, essentially. Um, but the shape of the relationship as far as how it impacts regional hypertrophy, the uh, directionality of the relationship as far as is longer muscle length training better for hypertrophy or worse, both of those things are in line with the rest of the evidence in other muscle groups. So to me, that's how I read the data on the biceps and triceps, is that uh, there's not enough data to be completely certain yet, but it seems to conform and align with the evidence on the remaining muscle groups. And therefore, that's why my rough takeaway from the overall evidence is, eh, this seems to be a generalizable principle. And interestingly enough, um, it's interesting that these two muscle groups have been singled out as being potentially not as responsive to non-muscling training because we do have evidence in them, and the evidence isn't leaning in that direction in my opinion. So moving on to
0: another another claim that, that often gets bandied about— um, one thing you'll you'll often encounter is people saying that training at long muscle lengths only increases muscle size by increasing sarcomeres in series or or muscle length, um, and and that statement is is often made with quite a bit of confidence. Uh, is that something that we know? Like, is that something that is well established in the research or established in the research to any degree whatsoever?
1: Yeah, this is interesting because I recently had a discussion around this with someone and uh, the most direct data they came up with was a study looking at limb lengthening surgery. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So I was just taken a bit aback at how indirect of a piece of evidence that was. And I think that kind of points at the general situation we have here. The general situation we have here with... um, longer muscle length training being more hypertrophic as a result of addition of sarcomeres in series or sarcomerogenesis, we just don't know that to be the case at all. Um, There is some evidence of this uh, occurring or the addition of sarcomeres in series occurring as it relates to passive stretching in mainly animal models. But one, in humans, the picture is much messier. We don't have as much evidence there. Two, we have next to no evidence of sarcomyrogenesis within these studies on range of motion or longer muscle length training and short muscle length training. And three, it's very far from being the case that we've established this in the research as being the mechanism of choice. Uh, It's just not something that we've established. I don't really know where this came from, to be honest. I think it may be the same as uh, passive tension as... The sole mechanism for long muscle length training, where it seems to have been generalized from some of the stretch data, but again, it's uh, it's a stretch.
0: Yeah, uh, I I I do think I have a decent idea of where it comes from, actually. So I'll, and and this this again kind of gets to what we were talking about before, where like if you're trying to establish something as like a a mechanistic explanation of some phenomenon you're interested in. Ideally, you want to observe that within the context of a study being done on the actual phenomenon you're interested in. So here, ideally, you would want uh, a study comparing training at two different muscle lengths that did assess changes in muscle length following training, um, and then look to see if changes in muscle and and if you did observe more total hypertrophy in the long muscle length group, see whether changes in muscle length were like super strongly associated with the degree of like outperformance of long muscle length training. Um, and I think like a within subject unilateral design would be ideal for that. If someone listening wants to do that study. That would be very cool. Um, but yeah, like I, so that that's how you would want to look at it. Um, where I think the claim comes from is kind of porting research from other contexts into this context where there have been studies where like there there is just like a single training group, maybe compared against a control group or whatever, and the training group does do an exercise that involves training at long muscle lengths and increases in fascicle length are observed in that group And so then that is kind of like ported over to say, therefore, that is the explanation for all of these findings, Um, which, again, that's not how one would go about establishing that it like that that is a way to generate hypotheses. That is not a way to generate explanations. Um, And the other thing I want to say about that is like most of the most of the in vivo research that one would even use to. Establish the idea that so okay the i the idea here is essentially that, like you can increase total muscle mass by increasing the cross-sectional area or thickness or, or like some some sort of like th- thickness measure of fibers, um, or you could increase total muscle mass by increasing the number of sarcomeres in series, like. You know, you, you lengthen a muscle, you expose it to a stretch stimulus. Previously, a muscle fiber had 550 sarcomeres lined up end to end from one tendon to another. And now, after the stretch intervention, uh, it has 550 sarcomeres stacked end to end. So, even if those sarcomeres don't increase in cross-sectional area, now you have 10% more muscle mass because you added 10% more sarcomeres. Like, the, those are kind of two two of the ways that a muscle could grow and so, yeah, that that is essentially the idea here. But then you're listening to this, and you might be asking, "Hey, how would one establish that sarcomere genesis had occurred in the first place? That an increase in muscle length, uh, or like an an increase in muscle mass was driven by uh, an increase in sarcomeres in series?" Like most of the time, uh, if you're doing research on that topic you would use um, ultrasound scans to measure fascicle length. So basically, like your muscle fibers are arranged in these little bundles called fascicles, and you can measure the length of those fascicles. And basically, if a fascicle of muscle fibers gets 8% longer or something, um, it is often then just assumed that it is 8% longer because the muscle fibers in that fascicle have 8% more sarcomeres in series. And that feels like a reasonable assumption to make, but based on my tone of voice, I think you see where I'm going with this. That's actually not particularly well-established. Like, that is oftentimes just a mere assumption being made. Um, And a group of researchers led by Pinchera and colleagues um, actually published a study... Uh, first online in 2021, uh, in print January 2022. Looking at this, um, so if you so the the another assumption underpinning that idea that an increase in fascicle length scales basically one to one with an increase in sarcomeres in series, like an idea underpinning that is that the resting length of sarcomeres doesn't change. Essentially, at resting length, you know, if if a sarcomere is like three uh, nanometers or whatever, it's always going to be three nanometers. Like it's never going to be five nanometers. Um, Like at resting length, you're going to have similar actin-myosin overlap. And so what these folks did is they um, it, it was like a three week training intervention with with Nordic curls, like eccentric only hamstring training. Uh, and the reason they chose that is like uh, Nordic curls do very reliably increase fascicle length of the biceps femoris head, So, you know, nice, nice, quick, easy uh, training intervention to very reliably induce the increase in fascicle length that you want to observe. And from there, uh, instead of just seeing the increase in fascicle length and being like, oh, yeah, like this is definitely due to an increase in sarcomeres in series. They took biopsies of the biop- of the biceps femoris, and they wanted to see, like, hey, how... Like, are each of the sarcomeres that we're looking at under the microscope, are they actually the same length pre and post? And what they observed was that there was, I think, a 21% increase in fascicle length and a 17% increase in resting sarcomere length. And so who knows? Like, maybe... Uh, maybe like sarcomeres in series increased by like four percent, but like the vast majority of the increase in fascicle length observed, um, you would not need to make recourse to increases in sarcomeres in series to explain that finding. Like, it did seem to be primarily driven by increases in sarcomere length. Um, and so, yeah, like, even, even to the extent that there is some research finding. Increases in fascicle length with long muscle length training. Again, like not in a context where you're uh, like directly comparing it to shorter muscle length training or full range of motion training or whatever. Um, but like just with with that sort of experimental model, finding an increase in fascicle length, you cannot then j- like strongly assume that that increase in fascicle length is directly indicative of increases in sarcomeres in series. Because, yeah, like there are other explanations for increases in fascicle length. And to the extent that this has been studied in humans, which isn't to a great extent, like there's not a ton of research on this topic. Um, But like, you know, when when these folks did actually try to look into it quite recently, they found that like, oh, no, it, it doesn't actually seem like sarcomyrogenesis is the main thing driving increases in fascicle length, like observed in vivo following a resistance training intervention?
1: Yeah, man. It's a remarkably misunderstood area, I think. Um, it's very opaque to a lot of people, and it's especially interesting when you consider that some people will generally just take it upon themselves to try and pay it down to this one thing, but without even fully understanding how muddled this one thing is, um, which makes... yeah. Which makes dissecting that take even more difficult, I think, on a public forum, because it, there's a lot of assumptions baked in. Mm-hmm. You know, Whereas if you're looking at the applied research, and you're like, oh, we see more hypertrophy. It's like, okay, this is pretty straightforward. But if you're talking about a mechanism that has several assumptions baked into it, and you need to look at the evidence on each of those assumptions, like for example, in this case, the assumption that it is an addition of Sorkomere's uh, versus simply a lengthening of existing срокомеers, you know that turns into a very tedious process uh, and very difficult to, I think, communicate effectively as well. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. J- just to
0: just to like very briefly complain about this for a second, like it it does frustrate me a little bit. Um, and like I'm I'm sure I've made this exact point or something very similar to it on the podcast before. But like just the difference between like trying to approach expert or like like trying to approach research um, like kind of soberly and rationally um, and and being very careful about the types of claims you can make from it. And oftentimes, like, when you're dealing with a phenomenon that is observed and well-established as a phenomenon, but the cause of the f- of the phenomenon isn't well-established, just being willing to say, like, hey, like, we don't know why this occurs. Here's some potential explanations, but, like, really, we just need more research to find out. Like, that, I think, to a lot of people, and probably even most people— um, comes across as um, it, it gives a presentation of less expertise than if you are willing to say like, hey, here's something we observed and like we know why this is. And uh, then like the proposed mechanism you throw out there, you state it with confidence and it sounds sufficiently plausible because like, I, I mean, in... So, you know, if someone listening isn't going to spend a couple weeks digging into all of the research on this topic, which like no one is like, why would they people have other things going on? And like, uh, would, would I rather just in a vacuum, sit down and watch sports for three hours at night or like dig into PubMed for three hours? It depends on the night, but like oftentimes, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be doing that for fun. And so like most of the time, the only folks who have really time to get into this stuff or folks for whom it is their job and like even if you're a trainer or coach like you don't need to know like the intricacies of the research on a particular topic like like you just don't it's not like that relevant to you and so you know in if if you don't have like the time or quite frankly the ability to like dig into a lot of this stuff yourself and in a vacuum you're presented with two people and they make not drastically dissimilar claims about something. And one of them say, and one of them says, and I can explain why we observe this. And the other one says, I can't explain why we observe this in a vacuum. The one who, who confidently claims to have an explanation sounds like they know more about the topic. And so I don't know it. it I, I feel like just human psychology incentivizes people to get way out over their skis in a way that's like not scientifically justifiable, but like it it works, you know, and that it, it bugs me. It gets yeah. under my skin.
1: Yeah, man. And not to do the good old appeal to authority here, but I think if you read a few studies in the area, right, and listen to the takes of a few researchers in the area. And if they don't mirror what someone is claiming is definitely the case. Some skepticism is in order, I think, as to those claims, right? And with the range of motion data, if you read the discussions of virtually any longer versus shorter muscle length paper in the past, like five ten years, very few, if any, have like ever said with any certainty that hey, it must be the fast calls, baby. You know, like it's yeah, it's just not that clear. So I think that's the kind of litmus test i would advocate it for if you're uh, not willing to spend three weeks in an area but you do want to get an idea of okay do we really know this
0: so like one one of the kind of like secondary claims made off of the idea that the hypertrophy advantages of training at long muscle links are all simply due to increases in sarcomeres in series uh, kind of a follow up idea to that is the idea that like, hey, um, you know, you can't you can't just like infinitely increase muscle length. Like eventually we'd just be walking around with floppy spaghetti noodles and like that's not like floppy spaghetti noodles as muscles like that's obviously not going to happen. So at some point increases in muscle length are going to run out um, and probably relatively quickly. Therefore, um, even if long muscle length training causes more hypertrophy in the short term that should be a relatively limited phenomenon so basically if like we might observe long muscle length training causing more growth over three months but like maybe after three months or after six months longer and shorter muscle length training would cause like basically identical ongoing muscle growth because you're not still uh, see, seeing the increase in muscle length from the long muscle length training. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that idea more broadly, not just in the context of increases in muscle length, but just the idea that like maybe this is kind of a short term phenomenon. Maybe, um, you know, maybe it's like kind of like a novelty effect uh, or kind of like you know, functional differences in training experience. Like you, you, like even in the studies where the folks do have some training experience, maybe folks do habitually train through a somewhat shorter range of motion. And so, yeah, if you haven't trained in a longer, through a longer range of motion, it causes more growth, but just because like, it's kind of a new stressor they're being exposed to. So, you know, kind of the, the broad idea is like, maybe this, maybe even if, long muscle length training does cause more growth. It it would be a short term thing and wouldn't extend to like a three year, five year time horizon. What what do you think about that? Again, just on a gut level, because there's not five year studies on this, but like oh, yes. you know, do do you think do you think that the results that we see over three or four months would generalize
1: over three or four years? Great question. Truth is we don't know. Um, As you mentioned, we don't have those five-year studies yet. Until we do, we couldn't really say for sure. And I think this is where it's tempting to have a mechanism to pin everything onto, because then with an understanding of that mechanism, we would have a better idea. The other issue with the existing data is that we don't have studies in particularly trained people. And that's actually something that we're trying to address with a study that's coming up that is using participants that have trained for at least three years. But in general, those are weaknesses of the area. Personally, until we have a compelling reason to believe that this doesn't extend into time. And by the way, I think novelty, novelty is kind of a buzzword nowadays and a platitude where people often use the what novelty to explain away. Okay, higher volumes cause more growth, but it's novelty. And then after two weeks, you don't see an additional growth anymore. What have you, right? Like novelty is this thing where it's like, you get those gains once and you don't get them back. Like you don't get them again afterwards. Um, novelty to my knowledge, isn't actually all that well evidenced when it comes to different things in lifting and hypertrophy. Like for example, there was one study that compared a constant uh, resistance training program to one where you constantly change things up, like different eccentric creations, different uh, exercise patterns. The, different... the 2019 Damas study. That is Correct. Hey, look at you, uh, knowing knowing it instantly. Um, Now, it's not a perfect study of novelty, but in general, the idea that novelty, for example, in terms of volume, there was a recent review paper on, does your previous volume impact your hypertrophy response to new volumes, right? Like, for example, if you did super high volumes before, does going into lower volumes impact how much hypertrophy you see? Or does doing super low volume before impact how much hypertrophy you see if now you were to increase volume, so essentially a novel amount of volume? And it just doesn't really seem to be the case that much. So novelty in general, I think, is at this point not a super compelling reason to explain away an idea. And I think that applies to muscle length research as well. Now it's not an area where I have a ton of confidence or a ton of data, but it does not uh, until we have a solid reason to think it doesn't appear long-lasting, I think it's a reasonable thing to say, okay. In the course of twelve weeks or so, this seems to lead to more hypertrophy, so it's probably something that, on that balance, is worth trying even for a long term.
0: I think that's fair. One one of my um, should I call it a non-scientific belief? I don't want to trivialize it too much. Eh, fuck it. I will. Whatever. One one of my kind of non-scientific beliefs, but I don't think anti-scientific beliefs is is I do I do think there's something to novelty personally. Um, and i kind of don't think that the i don't i don't think that there are ideal studies to test that hypothesis yet um but yeah i don't know i don't know that's that's another conversation for another day i don't i don't think that it's uh i i don't i don't think the dama study is like that strong of evidence against it like it it do, it does certainly lend some degree of evidence against the idea that novelty is important. But I think, I think that to the extent that it would matter, it would be within the context of habituation. And so kind of like changing the stressor every session wouldn't necessarily do much for you. But like, for instance, if like a, a kind of like simple, like operationalized version of this that someone could test if they wanted to would be in, eh, not really simple. This, this would be a huge pain in the ass to do. Cause like, it's going to have to be a long study either way, which is very unfortunate. Um, but like, I would love to see a paper that just like does alternating blocks of moderate and low intensity training where you do like six to eight weeks of training at 30, 40% one RM six to eight weeks of training at 70, 80% one RM Uh, And just kind of like alternate versus one group that only trains at 3040 and one group that only trains at 7080 and kind of see if over a year you observe more growth and like a more consistent trajectory of growth in the people changing out the stimuli like, you know, it, it, it takes you a few weeks to like habituate to a stimulus. But by the time you've done that, like by the time you've habituated to the lower intensity stuff. You're like considerably less habituated to the like moderate intensity stuff and kind of like, but the, the stimulus of those two things in isolation should more or less be similar. So I don't know. I, I would like to see a study like that. I, I do think, I do think that the group alternating would ultimately grow more over the course of the year than either of the groups that only stuck with one stimulus the whole time. But I can't claim to know that for certain, but yeah, that's, that's also too far off the beaten path. I don't think we should go too far down that rabbit hole, but yeah, I, I agree with you, um, about the, the long muscle link training. I think that I, I do think that the idea of novelty when it's invoked is sometimes done. So in like a bit of a bad faith way where any research finding you like and agree with, uh, is robust and durable and is not due to novelty and will extend infinitely into the future. And any research finding that you don't agree with is purely due to novelty and was only observed due to the short-term nature of the study and wouldn't extend into the future. And yeah, I mean, if, if we're being fair when evaluating research, we should not apply that critique exclusively to studies that don't fit our priors. But I also I, I find it difficult to begrudge people doing that because like uh, well okay here's an example. Uh, there was a paper, um, oh man, I'm blanking on the researcher's name. Um, I believe it was I believe it was out of Norway, but it was uh it was a study looking at blood flow restriction training and the squat in powerlifters. And basically finding like really, really um, like quite substantial preferential type one muscle fiber growth over the course of like six or eight weeks uh, or something like that. And I don't know, like I, I look at that and I'm like, yeah, if if a power lifter does like supplemental blood flow restriction training for their quads for a year, I don't think you would continue seeing like a fourfold advantage in type one fiber growth over the course of a year like i and I kind of think that the preferential type one fiber growth observed in that study was probably due to novelty. Um, so like i I get I get it, you know, like i I do the same thing, but I think it is a tendency to try to notice in yourself and try try to guard against so you can evaluate stuff as fairly as possible.
1: For sure. What I would say a few things. One, with regards to the greater type one hypertrophy in that study, uh, to what extent do you think we can distinguish between something having a component of novelty and the person simply being less trained? And do we think those are even distinct things? Because, you know, you could say, oh, uh, new lifters grow more because of novelty. They've never lifted before. It's just novel to them. Or we could say they're new to lifting and thus they have a faster rate of muscle growth, right? Which do you think it is?
0: Um, I think it's both and. I think it's both and. I think that um, to probably like massively oversimplify it, I do think that by and large, like in, in not like a linear way, but with a generally positive relationship, you tend to see. Larger physiological responses to larger stressors. And I think the idea of larger stressor should be operationalized within the context of prior exposure to a specific stressor and general versions of the same stressor. And so I think one of the reasons that you see more hypertrophy in untrained lifters is that they are... Like, they they don't have, like, prior exposures to stimuli that are similar to resistance training. And so, like, for any given external training stimulus, the internal training stimulus is larger, just because, like, there's a bigger mismatch between, like, pri- prior exposure and current exposure. Um, and so I do think that, like... And like, I don't think that's like the full explanation for it. Like I, I also think that like you have some surface area to volume constraints and like myonuclear domain constraints that may influence like potential rates of muscle growth. And, you know, those are starting relatively low with untrained lifters and they would be starting relatively high with, um, with trained lifters who are just like changing training variables, but like. Just the, and so, like, I think that that is like the primary explanation for why untrained lifters grow faster. Um, But I I do think a lot of it does have to do with like the magnitude of the stimulus itself, kind of per se. And so, you know, an untrained lifter being exposed to training for the first time would be a much larger, um, like, change in exposure and therefore, like, a much larger, like, relative internal stimulus than a trained lifter who's been only doing sets of eight for, um, you know, 16 weeks, shifting and only doing sets of 30. Like, that's, you know, going from sets of eight to sets of 30 is not as big of a change as going from no training at all to now you're doing some form of training. But I do think it's enough of a different stimulus that... um. It would, it would in general kind of be a larger internal stressor just because you haven't habituated to it over the course of, like you, you've habituated to a somewhat simu- similar stimulus, but there are differences in those stimuli that you would not have habituated to over, you know, frequent prior exposures. And so I do think it would be kind of like conceptually similar to a person training for the first time, um, but like, with a tremendous difference in degree, effectively. That's that, that's kind of how I think about it.
1: Sure. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think novelty, it's going to be a difficult thing to study regardless. And existing studies haven't done a super good job of addressing it. Um, since you mentioned kind of like differences in dose of training or stressor of training or the amount of stress essentially dictating to an extent the uh, response... I thought I'd quickly bring up, we mentioned mechanisms with longer muscle length training, but I think peeling it back one layer, we can kind of talk about different layers of mechanisms from something being a bit more practical and applied to being a bit more actual, okay, molecularly what's going on here? physiologically. Wise. Um, with regards to the mechanism with longer muscle length training, I think there are two things happening that are relatively clear and that do likely contribute to hypertrophy. The first one doesn't necessarily, and that's simply that it seems like spending more time at on average longer muscle lengths is, to some extent, in some capacity, a mediator. Right? It's not ultimately what's causing the muscle growth itself, but the thing that unites these different areas of literature, right, from partials at different muscle lengths to four inch motion versus longer muscle length partials to isometrics at different muscle lengths, is ultimately you're spending more time at on average longer muscle lengths. Now, when you're doing a four-ranger motion, you will always be also hitting the longest muscle length possible, but you'll be spending some proportion of each set in sh- at shorter muscle lengths. And so if we see that actually partial range of motion can lead to more muscle growth than a four-ranger motion, even though a four-ranger motion always includes the longest possible muscle length, it likely doesn't have to do with simply existing or targeting that longest muscle length more so with spending on average more time at longer muscle lengths. That makes sense. It's not about simply achieving the longest muscle length possible. It's more so about simply spending more time at a reasonably long muscle length on average. So that's one thing. The second thing is when you're using a lengthened partial approach, you will generally if you're just going to failure, defined as inability to perform another repetition with a length and partial approach, you will generally end the set past, quote unquote, full range of motion failure, right? So you can probably do a length and partial for a lot of exercises past the point at which you could do another full range of motion rep. And so if we're just comparing length and partials, but ending the set when you can't do another partial to a full range of motion ending the set when you can't do another full rep, when you're doing a length and partial, you're going closer to, quote unquote, true failure, or you're going past full range of motion failure. And so I think some of the additional hypertrophy we might see using lengthened partials could simply be due to the fact that you are going past failure, and generally we do see a relationship between going closer to failure and more hypertrophy so I think that might be what's happening here, and I think it's one of the more uh, substantiated things that might be a play hmm.
0: yeah that's that that is an interesting point that i that I Han and heard brought up before just the Kind of proximity to failure deal. Um, hmm.
1: I, 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 wonder, I wonder how you would test that. There is a way to do it. You would just do length and partials in one group versus a full range of motion in the other, oh, but yeah, not yeah. ending the set at full range of motion failure, but continuing to do partials until you can't get a partial with the same range of motion as the other group. And that's actually a study that I want to do, ASAP, um, potentially in New York with Brad Schoenfeld. That would be good. Because that would address that question. And also, most people don't like doing lengthened partials anyways. They prefer doing, like, full range of motion and just busting mm-hmm. out some lengthened partials at the end when they feel like they're getting close to failure and fatigued. So, it's a study we want to do, yeah.
0: Yeah, that that, that would be really cool to see, I think. Yeah, I, so, hmm. I do wonder, like, the the idea of, like, time spent at long muscle lengths. I do, hmm. I'm not totally sure I agree with you on that, but I am persuadable, I suppose. So uh, thought experiment, let's say you're doing, eh, let's just do bicep curls because it's easy. And let's say you're doing uh, either full range of motion reps, you know, full elbow extension to full elbow flexion versus long muscle length bicep curls just at the bottom of the range of motion. Uh, like the, the bottom half, specifically one half. So if rates of fatigue are similar and, and like let, let's let's just make this easy and say that you're performing reps at a pre pre described uh, angular velocity for elbow flexion. Uh, like just, just, just we're, we're in the realm of thought experiments now, but like eh, actually not like fully you could, you could totally do this study on an isokinetic dynamometer. It'd be cool to see. Um, in fact, this isn't that similar to the Sato study, except that was just two different partial ranges of motion. I think that was isokinetic, whatever. doesn't matter. But yeah, so, uh, um, you're, you're standardizing, uh, angular velocity for elbow flexion as well. And, and let's, let's just also say that you're like prescribing, um, you know, you're, you're, you're doing like three sets of 10 at 70% one RM. Uh, well, since, since it's isokinetic, 70% of MVC, like are full, fully ex- ab- abstracting this shit. It seems like the total time spent at long muscle links would be the same. Um, and I don't think that it would like change that much when you go back to normal training. Cause like, you know, if, if like a rep is taking two seconds with the full range of motion, because you also have the top half and it's taking one second with the length and partials, um, and you're doing 10 reps, like you're spending 10 seconds in length and partial land, uh, in both setups. But like. Uh, Like, I I guess in the real world, you would still probably wind up doing more reps before you fatigued with with the length and partials. But I I wonder how distinct that is from the other point of just being able to go past the point of failure, because in effect, what would be happening there is like if you're if you weren't standardizing reps per set, you would incur some fatigue during the top half of each rep. And that would reduce the number of lengthened partials you could do, but like uh yeah, I don't know, i don't know i'll 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 have to stew on that. I'm sorry that you you can respond to anything in there that I just said, but I think I may have just been talking to myself and working through something without
1: a clear question. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I get where you're coming from. And to be clear, by more time spent at lower muscle lengths, I didn't I I'm more so used it as shorthand for more time and or uh, force produced, just a combination of those things, right? Um I do think that is distinct from simply going closer to failure, and the reason why I specify that is because To my knowledge, the effects of going two failure versus, say, five reps in reserve, there doesn't really seem to be an effect on regional hypertrophy. And yet, when we're looking at the range of motion data, we do see an effect on regional hypertrophy of, for example, length and partials, range of motion, and so forth. So at the very least, it doesn't seem to be the only thing at play. And that's why I'm not just saying, like, yep, it's probably just because you're pushing extra hard, baby. You know, it's probably something more to it than that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, whatever. Fuck it. Let's go down this rabbit hole. I wonder what's your take on so-called metabolic stress being at all relevant for hypertrophy outcomes? Because I I kind of one of the studies that you talked about that I'm not totally sure that I agree with your take on um, is the is the Godot tricep study where you have one group training 0 to 120 degrees of elbow flexion, one group just going 45 to 90. Um, Like, I, I do acknowledge that the average degree of elbow flexion being trained at is greater in the partial group than the full range of motion group, but you do you do also have those 30 extra degrees at the bottom of the range of motion that you're going through with the full range of, gr- range of motion group that you, that you weren't with the partials. Like the maximal degree of elbow flexion, the maximal muscle links being trained were certainly greater with the full range of motion group than the partial. Um, and that study did observe considerably more triceps growth with the kind of like middle of the range of motion partials than full range of motion. So like, I could see how that could credibly be used to argue against muscle links being a driver there. Like, uh, and it's kind of a, it, it does beg the question of like whether maximal muscle length or average muscle length matters more. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I don't know for me personally, I wouldn't look at that and like chalk it up as one in the, in the long muscle length column, Um, or not like, it's, it's not obvious to me that that is the way that that should be kind of accounted for. But, um, I do think that the interesting thing about it was that in the partial range of motion training group, the area under the, uh, the, the oxyhemoglobin desaturation curve was associated with the hypertrophy observed. And it does also strike me that for not every exercise, but for most exercises, partials at long muscle length would keep the muscle under tension, um, which it, it hasn't always done so in the research. So like with the Pedrosa quad studies, like it was a dynamometer. There was like a mechanical stop at the bottom. So like the people's quads could have been like slightly not under load at the bottom of each rep. But like, you know, if you were doing squats, for instance, just in the hole and midway up like your quads are under load the whole time um and so like i do wonder the degree to which that's relevant because when you lock out a rep with a lot of exercises you can like relax some of your muscles and when you relax muscles you can get more blood flow into the muscle like uh and and clear more metabolites out like the um the circumferential expansion of the muscle, like during intense contractions uh, for depending on muscle size and muscle and what veins and arteries are going in and out does often like cut off venous blood flow relatively quickly and can even like significantly restrict arterial blood flow as well in some contexts. And so like there, there would be like metabolic differences between long length partials and full range of motion training in a lot of contexts and so like i do wonder the extent to which that is relevant for the results being observed particularly with the uh the Goto study in mind since that was something it, it was like kind of looking at
1: as well so i'm i'm curious about your take on that so i think with the Goto study uh the fact that they measured oxygenation and lactate was interesting. Now, to my knowledge, and like, definitely correct me instantly if I'm wrong here. Um, the role of hypoxia, and by hypoxia, I mean specifically like the oxygenation of a muscle, as it directly relates to causing hypertrophy, doesn't seem too promising currently. Or am I completely off base here? Um, hmm. How how are you using the word cause? Um, in that it's independently of other mechanisms uh, leads to hypertrophy. Uh, I think that's the case, but in
0: this instance, it's not independent of other mechanisms because it's in the context of, res- of a resistance training stimulus where there are a bunch of other things going on.
1: Sure. So you mean that that would then lead to differences, for example, in like a lactic accumulation and therefore that could lead to more hypertrophy? Or what, what do you mean by this exactly?
0: this is this is just like one of my hot takes i i do think people have kind of like closed the door on um like metabolic stimuli as a contributor to hypertrophy mm-hmm. a little bit too quickly um i think that essentially we have gotten very hung up on like initiators of hypertrophy signaling and kind of like independent direct causes but effectively like hypertrophy is quite complicated like essentially you you have an initial stimulus that kind of like is is sensed by generally by some structure and like that's that's another thing we're not even like totally sure what kicks off the hypertrophy signaling cascade like there's hypotheses that like it is probably some sort of, like, costamere-associated protein, like, focal adhesion kinase. But I don't think that's, like, fully proven yet. But essentially, like, some mechanosensitive structure senses hypertrophy, and it, you know, probably phosphorylates some downstream proteins. And then, you know, you have, like, four or five steps, and then eventually that's, like, integrated in the mTOR complex, And then you have another like five or six steps ultimately resulting in increases in myogenic regulatory factors that influence gene expression that codes for various proteins, a lot of them contractile proteins. And then, you know, that has to go to the ribosomes to be translated. And so then you have like potential constraints on like translational capacity and like, you know, eventually you wind up with more contractile proteins than you had before. But like, it's not as simple as tension occurs, it is sensed, muscle growth happens, bada bing, bada boom. Like, it's, I mean, it's like a fucking 20-step process. Mm-hmm. And that that's just, like, one of the canonical signaling cascades. Because, like, there, there are, like, non-MTOR-mediated hypertrophy signaling cascades as well. And so, um, it does seem, like, based on our current understanding, it does seem like the primary or perhaps even sole initiator of that cascade is probably mechanical tension, but that certainly doesn't come anywhere close to meaning that the, um, you know, that that's like the only thing that's relevant. Cause like things could influence other, other parts of that cascade. Um, like just as one example, like getting sick, causes, like, pretty significant ramp-ups in mTOR activation. And so, like, if if it really was that simple, like, A to B to C, you could just say, hey, like, you know, eventually those tension stimuli get integrated at mTOR, and then downstream of that hypertrophy occurs. But, like, you know, if it were that simple, just kind of logical flow, you could say, well, as long as we get the ramp-up in mTOR, who cares how it's initiated, because... That will necessarily lead to all of the downstream effects that we also see following resistance training. So, like, just fucking get sick and get huge, Mm -hmm. you know? But, like, obviously that doesn't happen because, like, so many other things about the intramuscular environment are different during resistance training than when you're sick. That Like, there are things that modulate all of the steps of that process downstream from mTOR activation leading to very different phenotypic responses to lifting versus being sick um and so like i don't know i it seems likely to me that some type of like metabolic stimulus probably like influences some of the steps of that process or even like multiple metabolic stimuli could influence like multiple different steps of that process and i personally would be quite surprised if they didn't Mm -hmm. because if it were if it were just all about tension we could go like a step more basic and just say like hey we're we're kind of wasting time by lifting weights in a normal way because like ultimately the amount like, the amount we can do is constrained by our ability to produce force concentrically, but, like, you can produce way more force, well, not way more, but, like, you can produce more force isometrically than concentrically, so, like, you know, fuck all of this, like, lifting weight stuff, just, like, chain a bar to the floor, move your body around the bar, and just do isometrics, like, that will put more tension on the muscle than anything else, well, not than anything, because you can get more eccentric (laughs) as well, but, like, you know, it'll be more than you can get from conventional training. And like why why even go to the gym? Just chain a bar to the floor and you've got like the perfect training implement for more hypertrophy than you could achieve any other way. Um, but like no one does that and I don't think anyone like actually believes that that would lead to more, not even as much growth, much less more growth. Um, which like if you could fully reduce it to tension, that would be not just like a hypothesis you would generate, but like a logical conclusion that you could like very confidently arrive at. Um, but like a key difference there is like the, the, there, there are a lot of like metabolic effects of dynamic resistance training that either don't occur or don't occur to nearly the same degree as with isometric training. And so like, uh, I don't know. I think, I think like, I think like some of that stuff is relevant and, I'm not going to claim that I know precisely mechanistically kind of like where it slots in and what steps of those canonical hypertrophy signaling cascades that it modulates. But I, I personally would be quite surprised if it didn't have some influence.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my main takeaway from all that was just my to-do list now has buy barbell and buy chains on it. That's the main (laughs) thing, really, the main takeaway, um, what I was going to say though is it's interesting to reflect on, and I've read, for example, one paper on uh, stimuli and sensors that initiate skeletal hypertrophy, right mm-hmm. and even reading that you as a review paper, you kind of understand okay we we don't fully understand the mechanisms or all the mechanisms and how they interact for hypertrophy, let alone specifically when it comes to longer muscle length training with shorter muscle length training, and so like it's entirely plausible that some aspect of metabol- metabolite stress or what have you is involved in longer muscle length training and why well, at least in more hypertrophy. As you mentioned, if by doing length and partials, you're staying under quote unquote more constant tension, for example, that might be playing a role. At this point, we just don't really know. And I think ultimately that's what we have to come to terms with until we get more evidence. And as you said, more evidence within the same studies that are actually looking at hypertrophy versus like different samples and that's part of the tricky component is that if you're doing one of these applied studies usually that's partly because you don't have these means to measure mechanistic stuff as easily so Mm -hmm. kind of a catch-22 and i mean
0: ideally you would want to be able to establish a lot of this stuff in in vivo like in living organisms and like in that context unless you're really confident generalizing research from transgenic mice like it is difficult to disambiguate a lot of this stuff, because, you know, for for instance, like proximity to failure, generally that's going to increase motor unit recruitment and like per-fiber tension for the fibers that are still recruited at the point of failure as you approach failure. And so you could look at some of the stuff saying, like, ah, we, we might be seeing more growth when people train closer to failure, and say that, like, ooh, that's all about tension. But uh, it's difficult to establish that because you can't disentangle it from everything else because in in effect you're you are just dealing with a larger global stimulus like if you go to failure versus stopping a set two rep shy of failure yeah tension goes up but like the metabolic stress is going to go up as well like um you're probably going to get more muscle damage and like post-exercise inflammation which can like modulate hypertrophy responses as well so like does it all reduce to tension uh who knows maybe it does but like uh like in in general like it's it's difficult to like increase the intensity of some proposed mechanistic stimuli or like modulator without also affecting others in living organisms and so yeah i don't know this this stuff is
1: is is very challenging to study no for sure it's it's immensely difficult to measure any of these stimuli in isolation. Um, I know that's a big area of concern, for example, when measuring the impact of certain metabolites on hypertrophy. It's difficult, especially in vivo. Um, but yeah, hopefully one day we have a better understanding of the mechanisms as it relates to both hypertrophy, but also more specifically range of motion. I, I just have
0: a couple more questions for you real quick. Um, so I'm wondering... What, what do you make of studies where, and t- talking about the uh, the Godot tricep study a little bit previously was, was a bit of a setup for this question, um, what, what do you think about studies where the group training at the longest maximal muscle length doesn't achieve more hypertrophy than a group it's being compared against? Um, so for example, there was a, a squat study um by Kubo and colleagues, where one group squatted from zero to 120 degrees of knee flexion, full range of motion, the other group squatted zero to ninety degrees, and quad growth was pretty similar in that study. Um, versus like most of the other quad research, like 90 degrees of knee flexion is like the long muscle length group, and it's being compared against something considerably shorter than that. So you know, it seems like less than 90, you're seeing decreases in growth. But like, you know, that study at least didn't observe differences between 90 and 120. The Goto tricep study, you know, with uh, with Mayo and arguably Stasanaki, it seems like you're seeing increases in tricep growth going past 90 degrees of elbow flexion. But um, with with the Goto study. Like going up to 120 degrees didn't outperform going up to 90 degrees, and so it it you know it's it's not all unanimous. So I'm wondering what you think explains that. It could it just be kind of like one off studies that you know it's just like sampling variability or just like some some shit that like wouldn't necessarily generalize. Or do you think like you know maybe um you know you you need to get to long muscle lengths but past a certain point further increases in muscle length being trained don't actually cause like continued increases in hypertrophy like there there are a lot of potential mm-hmm. explanations but like what where where do you think that leans
1: so i think with the goto study specifically as i said i think the partial range of motion group was actually training at longer muscle lengths on average right like yes the four-range of motion group actually went deeper on each rep, but they also spent proportionately a lot more time at short muscle lengths. So it may be more so related to, again, average position, average muscle length being achieved during the set versus just achieving the longest muscle length possible at some point during that set, if that makes sense. Um, In general, I do think that it's not entirely implausible that there is such a thing as like long enough, right? Where just because you've achieved a long enough muscle length, you're sort of, you've capped off that benefit. Um, equally, when it comes, for example, to the Kubo study on the quads, where you're comparing 120 degrees to 90 degrees, and you didn't see more hypertrophy when going to 120 degrees of knee flexion. To me, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, it makes sense that there's a threshold and part of me wants to say, yep. Yeah, well, it seems like with the KUA cool study, 90 degrees of knee flexion might be all you need to maximize quad hypertrophy. However, on the other hand, we're talking about a comparison of 30 degrees of knee flexion, which, depending on how large of an effect we're expecting here, in terms of the impact of muscle length on hypertrophy, may just not be a big enough difference to see a difference in hypertrophy as a result, right? That's one explanation. Additionally, kind of on the back of that, is we do have studies where we're comparing long muscle length training to longer muscle length training. So for example, the study by Cassiano and colleagues, where they compared calf raises with the knees fully extended. Um, so they were essentially doing calf raises on leg press, and they compared doing either 4 of motion calf raises, just doing the top half, so shortened partials, or just doing the bottom half, or lengthened partials and they measured gastroc hypertrophy. Now, because the knees are extended and the gastroc is a knee flexor, in any of the three groups, the gastroc should have been reasonably lengthened already. However, we're talking about reasonably lengthened in the case of the 4 of motion and maybe even the shortened partial group versus very or maximally lengthened for the um, lengthened partial group in this study. And Indeed, in the calves, they did see more hypertrophy when doing lengthened partials, as opposed to just four-inch motion, which was still quite lengthened, right? Because the knees were fully extended for the gastroc. So on the whole, I'm tempted to think that there is somewhat of a dose-response relationship here, and it's not just a cap-off, where like, okay, you've hit um, 80% of possible muscle length, you've got all the hypertrophy, congratulations. I think it may be somewhat more of a dose-response in the same fashion as you see for volume or relative intensity where the more volume you do or the closer to failure you train all else being equal probably the more hypertrophy you see i suspect it may be the same for muscle length but to be perfectly frank we just don't have the number of studies required that have investigated maximal muscle lengths so at this point i think it's all a bit of a shot in the dark um it could be that you're somewhat correct in your assumption that hey maybe we don't need maximal muscle lengths maybe just long enough is good enough or it could be that there is a dose response, but it's difficult to pick up on that when we have like two or three studies actually looking at that. And generally, some of these comparisons are relatively modest in the difference in muscle length achieved.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Um, primarily, so you can so you can respond to the haters out there. A, a a criticism of you that I have seen, and also of of people who I think follow you and parrot your stuff, not the best. Um, is that you, you and you and folks that follow you are maybe like a bit too gung ho about lengthened partials, and that uh, you think that that full range of motion is over, and you're 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 kind of like sending people down uh, a, a rabbit trail instead of like you know sticking to the basics. That that there's like excessive promotion of lengthened partials. Giving, giving people the the idea that like they should only do length and partials and like issue you know standard standard bread and butter training so uh the 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 floor is yours uh res- respond to that do do you think people should only do length and partials if they're trying to get as big as possible or
1: do you do you maybe still do some normal training yourself <sighs> It's funny because I feel like you're pitching this question up for me to answer that I still do some normal training, but I actually don't. Um, so for the past year or so, I've been doing exclusively length and partials. And that is, uh, well, with the exception of the occasional squat, bench, or deadlift, or overhead press with four range of motion for strength. But I'm talking 95% of my training has been just length and partials. Now, I think the... The big issue here arises when people don't realize, okay, this person's saying this works or this probably works and saying, okay, so they're saying this is going to revolutionize your gains or your hypertrophy. With length and partials, we're again talking about a 5 or 10% difference in hypertrophy. That's not even measurable by most people's standards in their own physique. Like if they look their own physique week to week, month to month, and they switch to length and partials for some exercises, they're probably not going to even notice, Right. I think the other thing is, whenever we make generalizations from the evidence to your own training, we have to make some leaps of faith, right? Turns out you're not exactly the population we were studying. Turns out you're not just doing school crushes in your training, you're also doing other exercises. There's a lot of leaps of faith in there. But I think that in general, at this stage, what I can say reasonably confidently is that you don't want, well, very confidently, actually, is that you don't want to miss the length and position in your training if you're going to maximize hypertrophy. Do I think that you need to be doing only length and partials to maximize hypertrophy? I don't know yet. I just, we haven't looked at that, right? I think based on the evidence and the consistency of the evidence that we have, look, there's been no study that's found better hypertrophy with four-inch of motion versus length and partials. And so I'd be hard-pressed to say that I think that someone doing more length and partials rather than less is going to be missing out on hypertrophy. Like that that would be a very difficult claim to substantiate at this point. Um I do think that a lot of people are just attached to whatever range of motion has been prevailing and it's worth remembering that hey, full range of motion wasn't always the uh hot commodity, you know, like mm-hmm. until a few years ago, I think personally, most people didn't pay attention to range of motion that much. And then full range of motion became kind of the consensus within evidence-based fitness at least. And then all of a sudden it was all about that. I don't think that it's always been the case that everyone's tried to maximize range of motion. And in fact, if you walk to the gym now, you'll see that plenty of people aren't doing a full range of motion. So personally, that's kind of my stance on things. I think that if you want to maximize hypertrophy, you probably want to include some length and partials. There's a chance that you'd optimize your hypertrophy with only length and partials. There's a good chance you won't either. I don't really know. No one really knows. I... Based on the evidence and there being no studies finding more hypertrophy with four motion, I personally lean on the side of it's probably a neutral to positive effect of doing only lengthened partials. I I struggle to think of a case where you'd see a negative effect. Um, it's possible, but we simply haven't looked at it, and so that's kind of my my whole stance on the thing.
0: Yeah, hmm. you know, I I think I think this is probably one of those other things where. You know, if if there if there was an effect, you're probably not going to to be able to, like, reliably observe it in yourself. But like, I don't know, Get, getting into the idea of like regional hypertrophy, there is the um, there is the the Stasanaki tricep study where it did appear that. Um, well, I mean, that that was another partial range of motion, but like it did seem like short muscle length training did maybe cause more growth in proximal regions of the muscle so like i mm, i i would i would not be surprised at all if exclusively doing lengthened partials uh led to like say reliably more distal growth than mm-hmm. full range of motion and maybe like middle of the muscle it's like kind of similar but like i wouldn't be surprised if in some muscles only doing lengthened partials potentially like compromised proximal hypertrophy a little bit but again, like, if global hypertrophy winds up being similar, like, who's who's really looking at their quads and being like, ah, damn, like, mm. you know, my, my vastus lateralis could be five millimeters thicker uh, at the 20% femur length site than it would have been
1: otherwise. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's um, that's kind of my take on it. I, I get that. But for what it's worth, I think that the stassian proximal data is actually in contrast to the proximal data from other studies where they actually, even in proximal sites, find more hypertrophy with length and work. So I wouldn't, the takeaway here wouldn't be that, hey, uh, you might be missing well, yeah, out. Yeah, th- that's, 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 why, that's why I said for some muscle groups. Yeah, but it may not be, even be some muscle groups, it may just yeah. be variants in my view. Like it may not be that the triceps are particularly prone to more distal growth, but not proximal with length and training. When you look at the data overall, I think it may be more neutral for more distal sites and more positive of a difference for more sorry, for more proximal sites, and more of a positive difference in favor of lengthened training for more distal sites. But I I don't think that there is evidence to support the idea that overall you'll see more proximal growth doing shortened training. It may be the same, but I, I just don't think the evidence overall um, is strongly in favor of that claim. No, I, I feel yeah,
0: I feel yeah. I, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I, I was just trying to throw, <laughs> throw out a counterpoint that someone could make from the research. I, I don't.
1: So you're extremely well read, by the way. Um, that's a counterpoint I've heard made, but never an actual reference to any findings. So it's interesting to see someone who's actually read the studies. I do what I can. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh yeah reading reading this stuff used to uh literally be most of my job so i'll i'll admit uh some of the references you've made like i i haven't read uh cassiano yet um i know you you and pack are both coming back on soon to talk about the like really high volume ennis study um i haven't read it yet so i i am i am starting to get like a little behind on some stuff but it's 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 still recent enough that I read everything that I do I do still know most references from like early this year and before for sure. Well, by the time this is coming out early last year and before. Okay, so my my last kind of prepared question here is um if someone is interested in in getting more into or experimenting with long muscle length training um, how how could they get into it? Like, kind of what what would be the baby steps that someone could take if they wanted to just like ease into more long muscle length training? Uh, or what's kind of like the the maximalist application that someone could take if they just want to dive in, you know, head first?
1: Sure. So I think there are a few categories of things you can do to shift your training towards being more lengthened biased, quote-unquote, or longer muscle length biased. One would be the very straightforward thing of just do length and partials. So whatever exercise you were doing, just take those same exercises, but instead of doing a full range of motion, do length and partials. I think this might be best suited to exercises where there's usually very little challenge in those positions. And I think this is an area of research where we haven't even touched on this in the podcast very much, but there might be a difference between an exercise simply putting you at long muscle lengths, like putting the target muscle group into a stretch position versus also having a resistance challenge there, quote unquote. So needing to overcome a certain amount of resistance in that position, needing to produce a certain amount of active tension. Um, so I think simply switching to lengthened partials might be best reserved for muscle groups where you otherwise don't get much tension in those lengthened positions. So for example, for most back exercises, for most side-out exercises, for most bicep exercises, you don't typically have a huge amount of resistance presented at long muscle lengths. And so if you were to omit those more shortened positions, all of a sudden you'd probably be able to use more weight and also make that lengthened position more challenging as a result. So that's one recommendation. But in general, lengthened partials are actually the thing that's been researched. And so it might be the most straightforward way of applying this stuff, you know, the highest likelihood of actually translating from the research, because it's actually what we've studied. It's very straightforward to use. It kind of equalizes, I think, a lot of exercises where certain exercises might not have a great resistance curve in light of this research. But if you do a length and partial, and for example, you know, you usually fail at a shortened position or a lockout, all of a sudden, you're still getting a good amount of length and stimulus by just omitting that part of the range of motion. So that's one thing. I think another thing would be switching exercises. Certain exercises will inherently just put your muscles at longer lengths and challenge them more so in that position. So for example, if you were to switch from doing a cable pullover or a cable fly to doing a dumbbell pullover or a dumbbell fly, all of a sudden you're, first of all, no longer performing a full range of motion for the lats or the chest. And the resistance curve went from being relatively uniform to all of a sudden you have the most resistance being imposed in those more lengthened positions. So certain exercises will simply be more lengthened friendly or stretch friendly than others. The third thing I'd say is you can make certain tempo modifications that may or may not help with being more stretch friendly. So for example, you can control the eccentric phase a little bit more as you reach into those longest muscle lengths during that exercise or into that stress position. Likewise, you could briefly pause in that stretch position and not pause in a shortened position, right? The final thing is you could be explosive or forceful out of that lengthened position. So at the very start of the concentric, essentially just try and produce as much tension as possible when you're first starting the concentric phase in that lengthened position. The other things are, I would say, two kind of techniques, and those would be lengthen supersets or essentially just when you finish your 4 of motion set do some length and partials right so when you can't get another four rep for example if you go into failure just do some length and partials until another defined end point right alternatively for certain exercises length and partials may not actually be safe or even length and supersets won't be safe so if you're barbell benching on your own and you don't know how to you know bail or what have you you may just not want to do Lengthen partials because it's a bit dangerous. Um and in that case, you might be uh, you'll you'll either
0: figure it out or you'll never be in a place where you need to figure it out. Like it's that's a that's a self solving problem. It is really. Uh it, that's 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 a bit dark. That's a bit dark. I don't I don't mean it if you don't feel safe benching alone. Don't don't put your life in your own hands. To be clear, it's not It's not the position of the Stronger by Science podcast that it is
1: fine if you die benching. We are against that. We are against that. Very good to clarify. I think it's important to do so. Um, Regardless, for certain exercises like maybe the free weight squat or the free weight bench press or any exercises where you feel there might be a risk of crushing yourself essentially, um, you may want to do something called integrated partials where instead of just doing partials or doing some partials only after your full reps, Maybe you kind of combine the two. You do a full rep, you do a few partials, you do a full rep, you do a few partials and repeat the process, but you make sure you end the set with a full rep or you end the set when you can just about get a full rep at the end. That's a fine approach as well. And it will give you probably most of the benefits of just doing length and partials, but without risking actually crushing yourself. Um, it's a fine approach and it can be a nice gateway drug, just like I know uh, you've discussed cannabis being. Um so yeah that's broadly speaking how i'd recommend it as far as baby steps versus maximalist application i think like tempo stuff or uh, so controlling the eccentric more in the lengthened position pausing in lengthened position and being explosive the start of the concentric phase and changes to exercise selection are probably like the baby steps thing right we're still doing a four inch of motion technically but you're just kind of taking steps to emphasize the lengthened position somehow meanwhile what I would do personally, if someone came to me and was like, "Look, I want to optimize hypertrophy," I would probably, over the course of a month or two, switch them to like at least half of their training being lengthened partials. That's how I see it. I think that does it for the
0: questions I had for you, but uh, the audience also has some questions. Let's kick it off with a question from Reed. So Reed asks, uh, Milo has been talking about his research supporting lengthened partials being superior. He's also said that they'd be more applicable to lifts where the shortened position is mechanically harder than the lengthened to allow for more lengthened overload. However, I have a different takeaway from his research that I was wondering his opinion on. That is, I see it supporting the notion that exercises where the shortened position is harder are simply inferior, and we should choose exercises where the lengthened position is harder by default. For instance, instead of doing standing lateral raises, we should lay down on our sides and perform unilateral lying lateral raises to make the lengthened position the hardest and apply the same mentality towards basically all lifts. So that, that, that does relate to kind of the last thing you were talking about, but just to, to directly address his question, what,
1: what is your take on that? 100%. So, Reid, I actually do agree with you, and I think in general that is a fine way of applying this research. I think that lengthened partials can simply serve as a nice way to level a playing field, right? So certain pieces of equipment or certain machines are going to be probably better based on some of this research. For example, if you have access to a prime machine where you can bias the lengthened position, right? That's a very niche piece of equipment, but it may altogether obviate the need for lengthened partials because you can just let load that length and position so much, that it is functionally length partial. However, length and partials are ultimately what's been studied in the research. And so personally, it's what I'm uh, partial to, pun intended, in the sense that, hey, it's what's been studied. And if you want to apply the results from the literature to our own training, then that is the most surefire way, quote unquote, to apply it. Equally, if you don't want to do partials or if... Certain exercises may also just be better, right? Like if you're comparing a dumbbell ladder raise, even with partials, to an incline lying down ladder raise, the incline lying down ladder raise is going to be a better option, whether you're doing length and partials or not, just because of how much of a difference it makes to the muscle lengths involved and to the resistance curve involved. So I think honestly, I would employ a combination of these strategies if I was going to optimize hypertrophy, because just using length and partials across the board may not be the wisest approach because certain exercises just aren't that good in line of this stuff. But yeah, I think switching exercises is still a perfectly fine thing to do based on this research.
0: All right, Kyle asks, uh, if emphasizing the stretch position is generally better for hypertrophy, but the stretch shortening cycle lets you move more weight, which will produce more muscle growth, pause
1: squats or bouncing out of the hole? So that's an interesting question. Uh, Ultimately, we don't have any direct evidence on the topic. I think there's a few important things to keep in mind here. Number one is what allows you to use the most weight on the bar is not necessarily going to lead to the most growth, right? Example, if you're doing a set of one rep versus a set of five reps, you'll be able to use more weight with a set of one, but it is unlikely to lead to more muscle growth. So we don't just want to maximize the load on the bar by a technique, via repetition range, or what have you. Um, in this case, my hunch is that pausing would probably be better. You're essentially making your quads, glutes, etc. produce more tension at the bottom of the squat. If you have to stop the bar from moving altogether, right? Um, you are producing more force than if you're resisting its descent. right? An asymmetric is inherently going to require a greater amount of force production than an eccentric phase. here, And so because you're spending more time in that lengthened position by pausing down there, and because you're producing more force in that lengthened position by pausing down there, I think based on the research, it's probably going to be better for growth. But it's worth keeping in mind that one, we're probably talking about a pretty small difference. And two, we don't have any direct research on the topic. So it may very well be that it's the other way around. But based on the research we do have, I think it's probably worth pausing. All right.
0: Simranjeet, uh has several questions, and I'll, I will i think I'll just ask you a couple of these. Um, the first is, uh, should uh, beginners to hypertrophy training use length and partials? Do you, do you think people should just kind of like get some experience with like, quote unquote, normal training first or or just dive straight into this if if you think it is better for muscle growth?
1: That's a great question. I'm of two minds of this on this. I think that it is probably worth more so from a general education and learning perspective, to familiarize new lifters with, hey, this is the full range of motion for this exercise. And maybe they spend a few weeks doing it. I think that's a good idea, just for their long-term development. Like, you know, for all we know, maybe in a decade's time, more research comes out and it turns out lengthened partials are more of a situational tool, or maybe they're actually not as good for aperture as you thought. I think for their development, uh, in terms of knowledge and in terms of long-term progress, it is probably worth teaching them what a four-range motion would look like. Equally, though, the studies we do have comparing length and partials to a four-range motion have been predominantly in relatively untrained participants. So I think, if anything, that seems to be the population I would be most open to using them. in. I know some people have expressed concerns about like, oh, beginners shouldn't worry about anything when they're first starting out. And there is some truth to that, right? Like I think information overload for people who are new to lifting is a thing. But I think in this case, why not consider what might give them the best results, especially if it's relatively straightforward. That's a nice thing with range of motion, as compared to doing more volume, for example, is it doesn't take you any additional time to take the strategy that might lead to better results.
0: Yeah, I, I do also wonder, I also wonder how how much of that comes from the kind of more, more old school concern of like, oh, if, if people are doing partials, but like short, short muscle length partials, like it, it can then be difficult to like get them to train through a full range of motion subsequent to that. Like, because that that is that is a concern people have. Like, if you're not doing full range of motion, generally the default is you're doing like partials, but like in an ego lifty way. So, you know, you 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 get your squat up to three fifteen, but you're only going through forty five degrees of knee flexion, and then it can be difficult to get someone to like humble themselves and like take a ton of weight off the bar to actually do a full range of motion. But like, I do I do think that something like that wouldn't be relevant here, because like if it Turns out down the road that long length partials uh, aren't superior or who knows, maybe after someone's been training for a couple of years, they're worse than full range of motion. Like, who knows what the future will hold? It's not going to be difficult to, to teach someone to lock out a squat. You know, it's like, oh, uh, it, the, It's it's a lot harder to say you need to humble yourself and go down deeper than you're already going down all the way. And guess what? Now you can just stand up all the way and like take a half second between reps. You know, that's I don't think it would be difficult to get someone on that tip. Like I don't I don't think you're really doing someone like an instructional disservice in that regard.
1: I do agree with you. I think it may be more so the case for certain movements like a pull down or a row. They may just not, if you never actually teach them, and this is assuming they're completely fitness agnostic when they first come in, they may never like when they get introduced to four-range motion. it may take them a while to figure out, Oh, okay. So you're supposed to stop the rep here. I don't know. I don't think it makes a huge difference either way, to be honest with you. No, I, I agree.
0: Um, and yeah, let's, let's close out on, uh, this question. um, is there benefit to slower eccentrics if you're doing uh, it like slowing down your eccentric when you're in a lengthened position? Do you think that'll lead to more muscle growth or do you think it could reduce injury risk? Actually, don't even touch the injury risk question. We're not sure. we're not physical therapists here. But do you think that do you think that slowing down the eccentric at long muscle lengths could could be another way to like eke out uh, like a,
1: a little bit of extra growth? I think it could be. I think it falls under the same category as just other ways of emphasizing the length and position. I don't think, like, based on the evidence we have around eccentric duration, you probably don't need to take it overboard, right? Like, a two to three second eccentric is plenty already, Like right? You don't need to do a four to five, six second eccentric necessarily. In fact, when you look at repetition duration overall, somewhere between like a second and eight seconds is going to be roughly equivalent for hypertrophy, So I don't think there's any value in inherently just lengthening the eccentric phase. However, if we're talking about extending the eccentric phase specifically in length position, so maybe you lower the bar a little bit faster when you're in the shortened position, and then you control it more as you reach that length position, it stands to reason that it would help. There hasn't been any evidence on this directly, but again, it stands to reason. It's kind of the same as a lot of these ways of applying it. And that's partly the trouble with research, is that we don't have direct evidence on all this stuff, you need to make some informed guesses when it comes to this stuff, or you could just say I'm only going to do lengthened partials, and that's it. It's up to you.
0: Makes sense to me. Uh, you know what? Actually, I I have one more question for you just to just to kind of close on. So one of the things that that strikes me a bit about lengthened partials and Hmm. Simultaneously, the people who are like really excited about them in a positive way and people who are really negative about them in a way of like, ah, like these these young these young coaches and trainers are trying to reinvent the wheel and like take people away from basics. Like so both both on like the positive and negative side of things like how how much do you think a lot of that comes down to people just being being either really excited or really prickly about new terms. Cause like what, one of the things that strikes me about a lot of this is a lot of lengthened partials, like the way you would apply them is not all that dissimilar to a lot of like the bodybuilding tapes that I watched back in the nineties and early aughts where guys were, um, like really emphasizing like constant tension. Like I remember, uh, Oh, there, there was like a, a Kai Green video where he's talking about like, oh, yeah, these these like power lifters are like ego lifting when they do the bench press. They're like locking out and getting a getting a rest between the reps. But Like you really want to keep tension on the muscle and like he's touching his chest coming up about two thirds of the way and going back down like that. Those are lengthened partials, I guess. But, you know, when when you call it constant tension training uh, or keeping tension on the muscle that that is, um, you know, that that's something a lot of people are either depending on kind of a- affective valence when exposed to that, either something they already feel positively about or something that they think is like old and boring and they're already bored by. But like it's it's an idea that people are like familiar with. And I don't want to be like too reductive and say that length and partials are just exclusively con- constant tension training because it is kind of like a framework to think about things and apply things in a way that people, I think, haven't historically applied the, the idea of like constant tension training. But to me, it it does seem like a new idea but not in like a revolutionary way just kind of like a a tweak on something that does have a lot of like just age and like dna in physical culture um and so yeah like i i am i am curious like to to the extent that it's caused like a lot of discussion both positive and negative how much do you, how much do you think it's just like people being exposed to a new term and just like Immediately responding positively or negatively that
1: there's a new word for something. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of it is that. I think a lot of it is a couple things. One, that it is a new term and a new practice, and people just, whenever you hear a new thing, it's like, oh, what's this now? Like, how do I need to change my training now? You know, what are the kids nowadays talking about? It's very reminiscent of the sort of old man yells a cloud meme. Um, in some ways, but the second thing is also, I think I have seen a sort of counterculture movement where I think evidence-based fitness is kind of becoming a trend or has become a trend. And I think there has been a counterculture now where there is counterculture where, uh, some people may not be as receptive to new ideas anymore. And this might not even be an entirely new idea, as you mentioned. In fact, that sometimes serves as ammunition, I think, where it's like, we've known about this all along. Barney Coleman, did them, or Jay Cutler, did them, or what have you. The bros were right all along, so why would I listen to scientists? And that being used as an argument or as a response kind of illustrates, I think, the whole uh, counterculture of, eh, who cares about science? I just lift, you know? And that's, I understand where they're coming from, but equally, I think that's a, a growing perspective within the industry at this point.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I think it's like an ebb and flow. And I think it's a relatively fast ebb and flow cycle. Like I've, I've been in this industry for, oh, man, now I'm, I'm about to sound like an old bastard, like ah, back in my day. But no, like, I've been in this ind- industry since 2011, I guess. So like 12 years. And I've I've seen like, kind of like science-y, like quote unquote evidence based stuff kind of ha- have its moment in the sun and be ascendant and then there to be like a backlash by like the bros probably like four times already like it's we're we're not talking about like decade long cycles like it's um it seems to be like a it seems to be like a 2 to 4 year cycle where you know one thing's popular then then the other thing's popular this time around honestly i think what it was was the pandemic I think like people were cooped up inside for like a year and a half and like couldn't lift that much, but like, so their outlet for their hobby was just reading about lifting and that's going to get you into the science stuff. And so I think that like, I think that like the, the pandemic was really like the halcyon days, not necessarily like monetarily. Cause like fitness industry pandemic was pretty rough, but in terms of like, uh like ideas gaining purchase within people who consume content i think i think the pandemic was like pretty pr- pretty fucking tight for for nerds um and now i think people are kind of out and about and going about life and so yeah, there's there is just like more of a backlash. It's just like I spent 2 years just like reading stuff on my computer screen and so now like I don't want to have to think about this stuff and I don't want to have to think about science. Like I just want to go smash some fucking weights. And um so yeah, I don't know. I think I think give it another year things will probably swing back. Like it's it it, it ebbs and flows. Like it it always does.
1: Yeah. It's just been interesting, obviously, somewhat being at the center of uh, this length and partial stuff. It's been interesting to see the reaction of, uh, I guess, a well-intentioned public. But it's it's interesting how heterogeneous heterogeneous the response has been as well, and like that's, um, mm-hmm. and also how the interpretations have varied fundamentally. Like some people will take this and run to the store with it and just be like yep this is gonna revolutionize your gains uh just my back exploded and stuff whereas some people are like yeah this we've known this for 40 years bro uh in the 70s 80s actually at this point the body rails were doing this already
0: yeah yeah it, it is uh i i've noticed the same thing like any any like kind of new idea is simultaneously like so old, it's boring because people were like Bill, Bill Pearl did this in the 50s and also like such a radical departure from like normal ways of training that it's like dangerous and scary. It's like, yeah, choose a lane. Choose a lane. Agreed. But yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I, I do wonder. Uh, And, and for, for people listening, I think we're I think we're probably done with like sciencey content. I suspect we might just like shoot the shit for a little while. And then at some point in the episode, but like I do what I do wonder, like a lot of the discourse around this stuff, I wonder how much like change in social media platforms has like affected that because maybe like two cycles of this ago, everyone was still on Facebook. And so if someone said something you didn't like, um, it was also, like, way more of a text-based platform back then. Like, now there's been a big pivot to video and, like, blah, blah, blah and all that bullshit. But, like, for the most part, it used to just be, like, someone would post an article and people would argue about it in the comments section for, like, several days. Um, and, you know, there, there were problems with that. But it did, I think, to some extent, encourage direct engagement with whatever was... Like direct, prolonged, somewhat real-time engagement with people you disagreed with. Um, And these days, like, I don't know, with Instagram and TikTok now is kind of like where a lot of people have moved to. It seems like there's less discussion about things and more just like response videos and then response videos to the response videos. And a lot of times like folks just kind of talking past each other and when it was just like a long Facebook comment thread everyone it was very easy for an onlooker to just pull up the comment thread and if someone was like bodying someone else it would be obvious but now like you you no one wants to go back and forth between two profiles to you know look at an extended exchange um, in a medium where like it's it's more difficult to like cite your sources and link stuff, and a lot of times it's taking place in stories, like it's ephemeral. So if you missed a screenshot, you missed like a third of whatever com- like controversy was going back and forth. And, like I don't know, I do, I do think I I want to say that that's made things worse, but I am also sensitive to the idea that. I might just be getting old and out of touch (laughs) because I don't know. I don't think that many people look back fondly on Facebook of 2014, but I kind of do.
1: Yeah. I mean, Hey, to summarize that they don't make beef like they used to, you know, back in the day, you could just scroll the Facebook uh, post and see everything. I do agree with you. And I think with it being a lot more visual nowadays and more video based, it can be difficult to convey the same, information that is usually just cited from articles um because i think when you can just skim read something you can read a comment that cites papers and still have it be fairly intelligible but if you're watching a video of someone citing papers etc that's a bit of a harder sell for a lot of people um you need to make it very engaging and so that's actually something i've been trying to do on youtube but it's i do think that text lends itself probably better to actual uh actual debate actual science communication
0: yeah also now i'm really gonna sound like an old bastard everyone's on their phones these days but like i i do actually think that's a bad thing because again if someone wants to cite a source and you want to pull it up i'll tell you what i don't want to skim a pdf on my phone like but if i'm on my laptop it's nice used to be you know traffic was like 80 percent from laptops and desktops and now it's like 70 percent from mobile devices uh and yeah i don't know i i think i think in a scientific discussion it's so much harder to engage if both people are primarily engaging through their
1: phones because like phones are so much worse for for reading stuff on i agree i do think uh, at this point we're one moment away from starting to discuss text next syndrome um and whether or not it's scientifically correct,
0: yeah you know, I think things were actually a lot better when people needed to like chisel their thoughts into like in, in cuneiform on tablets because like when when you're just typing on a keyboard like you can you can delete like it's very ephemeral um you can make edits, but like if you're chiseling something into stone, you really need to think about it beforehand. so I think that that lended itself to like much more like deeper well well reasoned debates. Yeah, no. I Yeah, I I was just feeling reminiscent. Uh, n- nostalgic about the fitness community of old, I guess. But whatever, things change.
1: Take take the good with the bad. Hey man, that is what it is. Um one day we'll get back to bodybuilding.com forums. Oh my
0: god, I would fucking love that. Uh yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm not you. You're trying you're trying to trick me into Con- continuing to like reveal more and more of my boomer tendencies. And like, I was willing to go back to Facebook, but yeah, dude, fucking forums. God, the for the forum era was the best. Um, but yeah, no, no, uh, I think, I think we need to wrap this episode up. We're, I was going to say we're getting further off the rails. I'm getting further off the rails. I can, I can take that one on the chin. Um, so yeah, just to, just to wrap up, do you have any just final Final thoughts or takeaways to leave the audience with. Also, one final question. Aren't you glad we didn't also do high-volume training in this episode as
1: well? Man, <laughs> if we did that, it genuinely <laughs> would have been like seven hours or something. It would have been absurd. Um, Final thoughts. So, I don't know. Range of motion-wise, if you're competing in strength sports or any other sports, probably be specific for the most part. Train the range of motion that you want to train in. For hypertrophy, consider emphasizing the length of position. Somehow, might be some partials, might be certain exercises that do it better, might be some tempo stuff, or just some partials at the end of a set. Overall, you know, I hope this was informative. I hope this was a good podcast.
0: I think it was, uh, or at least your con- your contributions to it were good. I don't. I don't think I was at the top of my game today, but you know, that's how it goes sometimes. Uh, and I. I appreciate you for for sticking it out with me. Um, Milo, if, if the folks want to, to follow you and keep up to date with you and the research you're doing and discussing, where, where can the people out
1: there find you? For sure. So I think the place I'm most active nowadays, I'm really pushing for is YouTube. So you can find me on YouTube at Wolf Coaching. Equally, if you want to find me on Instagram, you can find me at Wolf Coach. That's my last name and coach. And finally, for my research stuff, I would search Milo Wolf, so my full name, and ResearchGate, and you can find all my research output on there, including the range of motion stuff, but also some other papers on, for example, RPE or reps and reserve accuracy, deload studies, all that sort of stuff. Sounds
0: great. Well, Milo, thanks thanks again for coming on. Uh, and for everyone who, who listened and stuck it out this far... Um, thank you. Uh, we love you. We appreciate you. And uh, I'll, I'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Goodbye.